Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, we're going to talk some Congress. We always go to this guy, Eric Garcia. He is the congressional reporter for the Independence. Also got a great book out. We'll talk about that in a little bit. How are you, sir? Great to talk to you again. Doing all right. How you doing? I'm good. I'm a little worried about you and your job security because we did the State of the Union but something that's not really getting reported much on, except I hear it from all the people that cover Congress, this Congress is doing nothing. And I thought that was a little bit of hyperbole. And then I went and looked at the Senate schedule. They're averaging one vote a day since they convened. One. Yeah. And it's usually a proceed. There's literally nothing going on in Congress right now. This is amazing. There is. The Senate is literally. I was talking with a friend of mine. It's like basically at the end of the year last year, they passed the omnibus. And then after theirs, they're like, okay, we did what we did what we needed to do. Um, because like if you remember after Warnock won the uh, runoff, Schumer said, we're just gonna focus on judges. Judges, 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 like he was taking a page out of Mitch McConnell's book. Um, but they're just have mostly, as you said, been procedural votes. There was like a vote to confirm an assistant secretary or something, but there, and, and I think there was one for a judge. But it's not like you know the the much to the chagrin of Democrats, there the 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 judicial confirmation assembly line hasn't been initiated, and conversely, there hasn't been a lot of movement on really anything else. And then meanwhile, <clears throat> on the House side. And we can talk about the house later. Kevin has basically had to do a bunch of uh, performative votes. I think it's fair to call them <laughs> to uh, to appease the uh, the gremlins in his in his in his conference. So 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 yeah, they just haven't gotten anything done. What? <laughs> Look, I'm all for gridlock because you can't screw anything up if you're not doing anything at all. But this is really remarkable stuff. Now, we knew some of this was going to happen because it's such a thin majority. You know, yes. even though this, the Democrats have the Senate, they have a slim majority also. So they, we knew some of this was baked into the cake. But this is really amazing for the start of a presidential election cycle. And let's all be honest, all the House members start running right around December. So they, they've got yes. about, you know, eight, nine months until they start running again. There, there's no sense of urgency. I know how much, give me the ratio though. How much of this is the gridlock of the situation? How much of it is leadership not knowing how to handle it and move the minutia of the Senate and the House? So I would say it's about a hybrid. I would say it's about 60, 40. 
Part of it is, as you said, part of it is, as you said, it's that they have because even because on the on the set side, there's a 51-49 split. So there's that. Not counting the fact that Kirsten Cinema basically became an independent. She still caucuses with the Democrats, but she's you know she's friendly with a lot of Republicans and votes for them sometimes. On the House side, the Republicans have a 10-seat majority that's going to become a nine-seat majority after a special election in Virginia. So part of it is just handling these very, very slim majorities. The other part of it is that they just did it is that on the Senate side, they hadn't sorted out their committees until like not this last week, but the week before. They had it even they had it uh because what happened is um Eric Schmidt, the said the new senator from Missouri, wanted to be on judiciary with Greitens, and then they didn't get they didn't give it to him. So he wound up going he wound up going on Veterans Affairs, uh, Armed Services, and then Holly was was taken off went off Armed Services. So they've they've just been playing musical chairs because Republicans have one less seat, and then on the <clears throat> House side they had trouble with sorting through committees because. McCarthy, let's be honest, he wanted revenge after they kicked off Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar. So there had been, there was a lot of back and forth on committee sortings on that one. And on top of that, they had to um, organize these new committees on China, uh, COVID, and the uh, weaponization committee. Yeah. Let's talk about that committee real quick. Um, Eric Garcia joining us. There's been a lot of hubbub about it. Jim Jordan's heading it. Yes. What are they actually doing? Because everybody's got their opinions of it. You know, the Republicans are saying this is the hold accountable stuff. The Democrats are saying this is going to be a perpetual Benghazi hearing. What's the truth of it? What are they actually doing in the committees? And more to the point, how's Jim Jordan? do? Look, Jim Jordan's wanted this power for a long time. He's angled for it. Now he's got yes. it. What's he actually doing with it? So this is the thing that I've said about Jim Jordan. The reason why he didn't want to be Speaker of the House is that <clears throat> being 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 the guy in the chair is very different from being a, a a bomb thrower, which is what he's been through the majority of his career. Um, John Boehner used to call him a legislative terrorist, um, but now I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to split the balance between seeming like a responsible chairman of a committee while still being the guy who hoots and hollers about James Comey and Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. So I went, so I was actually in the room for the first uh, two hours, I think of that um, weaponization committee before my, before my mom called and you got to answer mom, no matter where she calls you. Um, and <clears throat> so, uh, so 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 what he what basically they did is that they had this opening panel with Chuck Grassley, Ron Johnson, Jamie Raskin, and Tulsi Gabbard of all people. And basically Johnson and uh Grassley complained that the federal government was interfering with their FBI, with their with their investigation into the Biden family. And Tulsi Gabbard just went on to a whole tirade about how she was, uh, how she was, how people were mean to her about like, and said that she was a Russian agent. Um, it, and it was, it really just kind of, and, but, and a lot of it was, you know, moaning and a lot of other things about the Twitter files and Elon Musk. So really the, the question, and I said this, you know, my takeaway from that was, the difficulty, I think, for a lot of Republicans on that committee 
is making the things that they that they care about seem like it's stuff that other people should care about. Uh, and, and that's really been the difficult thing. It, it, it has, but so far, it hasn't necessarily, and, and given it's just the first week, so it hasn't produced the fruit and it hasn't led to, you know, the kind of um, wall-to-wall marquee headlines that I think Jim Jordan and Kevin McCarthy wanted it to have. Yeah, and part of that, Eric Garcia, this is not the January 6th committee. This is no. a fully stacked committee with both sides. The names on the Democratic side for people that don't know, the other than Debbie Washerman Saltz, who headed up the DNC, so she has a little bit probably more of a national profile. Guys like Jerry Conley, Sylvia Grace, Linda <laughs> Sanchez, these aren't big-time names. These are people that know how to do committees, though. There's pushback on this thing. There is a back. By the way, Jordan's actually doing a pretty good job with fair time as far as the committee members go. Obviously, yes. the witnesses are going to slant, but he's he's playing it straight with the committee members. He's he's yes. doing his job in that regard. But that also means they're getting pretty close to equal time on this thing. I'm just looking at it from the outside, so I'm like, yeah, I know Macy and Gates and Stefanik's on these committees. Is there any way an outside observer is not just going to look at this and see it as a wash? Yeah, that, that's the other thing is so so Jerry Connolly and Dan Goldman had I think some of the best questioning on the Democratic side. Um, I, th- I think that Stacey Plaskett, who's the rep, who's the um, who's who's the ranking Democrat, had pretty much had, had had some good questioning and had a, and had a pretty strong opening statement. So the fact that it, it, so as you said again because this is a very um, narrow, because Republicans have a very narrow majority, it's not like they have a bunch of committee members who can just um, overwhelm the Democrats. That leads, like you said, to it kind of just people seeing this as basically a break-even. And uh, and um, you know, Goldman had a pretty interesting exchange with Jordan. I'm sure you know it, it made the rounds on the internet. Uh, and, and for those who don't know, Dan Goldman was the head attorney during. Um, the first impeachment for Trump uh, with the with the Ukraine stuff. So 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 as as you said, it was very. It, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I, I kind of walked away from it saying, feeling like this didn't move the needle either one way or the other. Yeah, I agree with that. And the other problem you got is, and I I have asked people this question. I still haven't got a good answer. Is like. Jim Jordan's the guy who's like, I'm not going to answer any subpoenas. Why is anybody getting subpoenaed this thing? The, their first opening statement going to be, well, you didn't answer your subpoena. Why do I got to answer my subpoena? And I think that's going to kind of be the doom loop that this thing's going to get into, other than just the sound bites and the partisanship that's going to come out of it of what they're going to. I don't think anybody outside of that's really going to get any traction on this. Is that a, is that a fair way to look at it? It is a fair way to look at it. You know, again, because of the fact that he didn't answer subpoenas on the on the January sixth committee, he didn't. Uh, you know, and he he's basically kind of flat thumbed his nose at it. Uh, that that has kind of led to him. Uh, that that's kind of that that could actually kind of uh, backfire on him. Incidentally enough, the the funny thing about that. <clears throat> Oversight committee about that organization committee is yes, you got your Gates and your Stefanics and all that. It was not as much of a circus as the oversight committee hearing the day before, which was um, a debacle. And I think that Kevin is probably regretting putting, and I should say, James Comer is a pretty, you know, evenly, you know, fair handed guy, but. And Jamie Raskin, from what I understand, likes him. And when I've talked to them, they, they get along. But I think that Kevin is regretting putting Marjorie Taylor Greene on that committee. Um, 
Yeah. So, 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 so it, it, that that hearing was much more of a debacle. So. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about Marjorie Taylor Greene, too, because I've got a little bit of a working theory on here. I think, and people, look, this is just, we do a dog grown folk talk here. Probably the best thing that ever happened to Marjorie Taylor Greene was the Democrats stripping her of her committees because yes. never, nobody listened to her talk outside of conservative media for two years. Yes. Anybody that pays a lick of attention to her, they can't hide her now. And I know no, I, she's not the only crazy person in Congress. <laughs> There's a couple on the Democratic side that say really Looney Tunes things, but she's just kind of... Look, Kevin made the deal. Kevin McCarthy, yes. she buddied up to Kevin to get her committee assignments back. She's got it. They can't hide her now. And she she ought to be an in-kind donation to Democrats because she is just so off the wall with this stuff. I think this in the long run is actually going to end up being her undoing the fact that she's actually on the committees now. No question, because she, I remember like after she got stripped of committee, she says, oh, well, now I have more time to like do other things back in like 2021. And weirdly enough, she was kind of right about that because if you're on committees, that means you actually kind of have to do serious, important work. Say what you will about Matt Gates, but if you remember the thing that he wanted when he twisted the knife into McCarthy was he wanted a chairmanship over, over uh, I think it was for, uh, a subcommittee on armed services, which makes sense. He represents Pensacola. He represents the Panhandle. There's military bases there. Green for all for, for for you know doesn't have those same interests it's not like she's it's not like she necessarily wants to you know get something through uh, across the across the finish line on education or government reform or anything like that she's just going to be um i think fair to say peacocking um 
on these committees and then these things are going to go viral these things are going to go uh these these, these things are going to make the round on the internet and incidentally enough ironically enough uh the person she she's now on the committee you know that she's on oversight she's now going toe-to-toe toe-to-toe with um aoc which criticisms of her aside and there are plenty of criticisms i've made criticisms of her she's a good questioner in these hearings and she doesn't peacock so it's it's a um it's it, it you know it, it probably might be their undoing and as i said kevin might come to regret putting her on oversight because she's going to be asking about the twitter files and elon musk and you know COVID origins and she's also on the COVID origins committee as well so that's going to uh, be another thing yeah eric garcia joins okay we've been beating up on the republicans let's talk democrats for a second sure chuck schumer hadn't had a whole lot to do because they're waiting on the house to do anything he yeah. does have two themes developing here he's yeah. talking a lot about the debt limit, which all he's got to do is sit still because they're going to pass a debt limit. It, Kevin painted himself on a quarter in there. So he's just waiting on that shoe to drop so he can hammer them. He is definitely just going to talk about China nonstop. This is all yes. he's talking about now is China, China, China. He's got some simpatico with Mitch and the Republicans on this so he can call it as a bipartisan issue. This is something that obviously the White House is going to be paying attention to. This is not look Chuck thing Chuck Schumer plans these things out. This is a theme. He's not going to get a whole lot of stuff from the House GOP, so he's just going to hammer this China stuff. Is that a fair way to assess where that's at? That is absolutely a fair assessment. And of course, with these unidentified unidentified objects, uh, what was interesting? I'm sure you saw this uh, on Saturday. Uh, Senator John Tester said that they found another uh, another. Um, object flying over the sky in montana and tester put out a put out a thing and, and what what i it was interesting when i i saw it and i interpreted it as oh chuck's giving tester who hasn't made a decision about running yet um a little bit of breathing room it is allowing him to um kind of sit, look like he's doing serious work I, 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 that's not to say that tester isn't sincere uh, uh but but it, it's allowing him to be seen as this as you know, keeping a monitor over this thing after the, after the, another flying device came over the skies of, of Montana. That was th that really said that to me. And I was like, oh, Chuck is give Chuck Schumer's giving uh, John Tester some breathing room. Eric Garcia joining us while we're on the subject. Look, I'm one of those cynical people. Uh, yes. I'm very cynical about stuff. No, I don't believe in aliens. No, I don't believe in UFOs. Yes, I study history. I'm all for shooting down anything that encroaches on our airspace because that's a sovereignty issue. I also study history. This is not the first, last, or will be the last time our airspace has been violated by a foreign power. Let's be adults here for a second. You just mentioned it. There's a political aspect to all these unidentified things getting shot down. And yeah. this, all this, my question, when something comes out like this is not, why is it happening? My second question is, why are we hearing about it? Well, yeah. I've got a little bit of a theory that we're hearing about this because this GOP Congress came in saying they're going to cut the DOD budget. There is now wide ranging reporting that Biden's budget proposals is going to have an increase in DOD yes. spending. 
Gee, Wally Willikers, wouldn't you know that anything vaguely looking like a threat that the DOD can answer is getting a whole lot of press? Look, there's politics involved in these stories. Yeah, I mean, now, now take into account with the um, with the the first balloon that we knew of, uh, not this last week, but the previous week, that wasn't spotted by the DOD. That was spotted by people in Montana. Uh, so, so, so taking it, but the fact that they shot down the device. Uh, over the coast of the Carolinas, and the fact that it, ha- uh, uh, you know, that's that was interesting. That uh, the fact that uh, Admiral Kirby, that uh, John Kirby, who's the NSC spokesman, uh, spent basically the entirety of his brief of the press press briefing last week on Friday talking about it. Despite the fact the president's going to Poland to show solidarity with Ukraine, it does show that I think that the DOD and the Pentagon is absolutely trying to make the case that we can't make the cuts because there are, and I should, I should also add, the, the House, members of the House GOP are talking about this, but the Senate GOP is very much, um, no, this is unacceptable. As soon as the balloon was shot down, Mitch McConnell said that the president need, can't cut his defense budget. He needs to increase the defense budget. Uh, plenty of senators like uh, like Senator Roger Wicker, who's on armed services, I think he's the ranking member on armed services, said that this is a that cutting defense spending is a no go. So this is going to be uh, so the, pre- the the White House uh, Senate Republicans and some House Democrats are basically telling the 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 really right-wing conservatives no this ain't happening you're not cutting the defense budget yeah and there's a lot here defenses like education is like well you can't do it. most of the budget has nothing to do with the frontline troops that's what they're talking right. about cutting. so this is just kind of the old administrative story. yeah it, there's plenty to cut in the dod that wouldn't hurt the troops whatsoever okay eric garcia the the debt ceiling is going to be the theme because there's nothing else going on there's yeah. going to be a deal here of some kind What's yes. the pound of flesh involved here that gets this over the starting line, and does Kevin McCarthy survive it? Okay, those are two very important questions. So first off, yes, they are going to raise the debt limit. Don Bacon, who is a moderate from Nebraska, said that they're not going to do what's called a discharge petition, which would allow for all the Democrats and some moderate Republicans to just bring a clean debt ceiling increase um to the floor without without going through the committees but i think that ultimately was and mccarthy has said ultimately that social security and medicare are off the table that hasn't but what he didn't say is he didn't say medicaid and uh you know my good friend joseph surprise roig uh asked joe manchin about uh, about medicaid and he said and he kind of showed some openness but then when i talked to joe manchin he said that we're not scaring the bejesus out of people about things that they depend on so that might be something they there might be some cuts around the margins around the uh, you, you know but i don't think but the, incidentally enough, the person who um who, who, who laid it out the most was AOC, which she said, look, if you don't touch Social Security and Medicare and you don't touch defense, you don't have that big a chunk of when it comes to not when it comes to discretionary spending and non-discretionary spending. You're going to have trouble making the kind of cuts, especially because Republicans want to uh, put the, uh, you know, balance the budget within 10 years. When you take Social Security and Medicare off the table and you take defense off the table, that is un, that is infeasible. So the question then becomes, uh, and, and of course, take into account that there's still the Democrats still control the Senate, so they're probably not going to say they're probably not going to say yes to a lot of the kind of cuts that House Republicans want anyway. So that is, uh, so really the question is, what is there left to cut? And then the question comes, um, 
will Kevin be able to get enough Republicans? Will he be able to follow the Hastert rule? And for those who don't know, the, the Hastert rule, named after an actual pedophile who went to prison, uh, it means that Republic that that House Republicans need to get a majority of their party to put anything on the floor. I don't know if that can actually get the if that can actually get to the floor. So 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 or, or that or without without Kevin having to ask the Democrats for a hat in hand. Both of those will be brutal to him in his own raucous caucus that he's trying to hold on to. Okay, uh, one last question. We are entering the presidential light. Look, Biden's going to run again. We've got most yeah. of the Republicans. Um, Nikki Haley's going to be announcing here probably next week. It looks like Trump's already in. DeSantis's people are saying his timeline's somewhere around May to June. So yes. we're in a holding pattern on this. Presidential elections affect what Congress does a lot a lot what is the congressional because that's what you cover what are they waiting to drop in the presidential cycles are they trying to just get this debt limit done before that kicks in the full gear and then they can just do committee stuff how's congress and the senate reacting to the calendar ticking on the presidential season well i mean i think that it was interesting i talked with brendan buck who worked for john boehner and paul ryan uh right after the midterm election and he said absolutely trump being in the presidential cycle and being in the presidential uh fold is going to absolutely affect this because if trump posts something on truth social um and he says kevin don't take the deal need to be strong all caps uh, or we don't have a country um uh then that could affect a debt limit deal Conversely, um, Ron DeSantis never really had a relationship with Kevin. So I think that uh, because he was part of the Freedom Caucus and all those folks when he was a member of Congress. So it absolutely does affect it. I think that what I'm sure that McCarthy is definitely thinking about the fact that if Trump doesn't like a deal that they've done on, you know, the, the, the budget or a continued resolution or, uh, or or the debt limit, that uh, he's going to have Marjorie Taylor Greene knocking on his door sometime soon. Uh, and it's not going to be pretty. Yeah, Eric Garcia, I'll ask you this because I did a Fox hit a couple of weeks ago and they were asking about it. Look, he can go back on Twitter whenever he wants to because I'm talking about Trump here. And and Elon begged, borrowed, and tried to shame him into coming back already, and he hadn't yet. This this true social thing, he's supposed to wait six hours or whatever. It's got a regulatory problem. It may be going under before even then. The yeah. rumor is that his agreement ends with them anyway, somewhere around May or June. That's about the time presidential season really kicks off. Trump can get back on Facebook now, Meta, that includes Instagram, all this stuff. If you start getting, I'm just looking at the congressional calendar here. This is about the time all this stuff's going to really get icky yes. and dicey this March through June. Look, that's going to be the make or break of this Congress is the March through June period of this year. That may be the time that the presidential season really kicks off. That might be the time Trump returns to social media properly. That's a lot of cross streams all at once for folks to deal with. It is, an, it is, it is going to enter cross streams. And I'm sure that, uh, you, you know, back in the day, uh, uh, 
Paul Ryan used to joke that he said, like, every morning I wake up and I check all of Trump's tweets that I'm going to pretend that I haven't seen this morning. Uh, and, and that is absolutely going to be Speaker McCarthy in the coming weeks, because he's going to have to he's going to have to pretend to say that, you know, Trump's the president, but he doesn't lead the Congress. He's not the Speaker of the House. Uh, but but he's also but also he's kind of in a bind because, as people might have remembered, if you because thanks to the C-SPAN cameras, Marjorie Taylor Greene got Trump on the phone to try to whip up votes for him. So. Kevin is kind of, I'm trying to think of the word. Kevin owes Trump a debt. And Trump could basically at any moment tweet out, I got Kevin the speaker, the, the votes for the speakership. Don't pass a debt limit increase. And then what is he going to do? You know? Does he survive the summer? I it, it, it could very easily so so the question of whether he survives the summer or not it has, has always been the that that's the question everybody else asks but the 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 because he has to pass is, a debt limit like let, yeah, let, let's yeah. play this out he is going to pass the debt limit that yes, is going to happen but, which breaks all his promises which breaks all of his promises because he got rid of the get part rule he got rid of a lot of the other rules the question then is who leads the revolt because. It's got to be someone with credibility. It can't be Matt Gates. It can't be Warren Boebert. It's got to be one of the you know ten or thirteen Republicans who switched their votes on him. And the other question is, who do they put up in exchange instead of him? Uh, that that's that to me is the real question. Is if he the, the way he survives is who leads this revolt against him, and do they have a credible alternative? Because Scalise is not going to knife him yet. Uh, Jim Banks is leaving for the Senate. Um, but, Stephon, yeah, well, Stefanik, but well, as we've talked to before, I've, I've said it since she did it. Stefanik did not burn all her bridges to sit at the number three spot. So Scalise better do it or get off the pot because he might get double knife because he's got her standing behind him. I'm just, yeah. I'm just throwing a name out there. Like she, she didn't look, she's an Ivy league. She was into the, she didn't burn all those bridges to be the number three in the house. Yeah. She's ambitious. That's somebody I would watch. Scalise may do it himself. Banks yeah. is off to the Senate, supposedly, and that's going to get ugly. But I, I would think it would be one of those two, right? It would be one of those two. I don't – Emmer, I think, is waiting to, to actually move up in the ranks after he, after he had a, a, an admittedly good two terms as NRCC chairman. But the, but the, 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 the real question, as you said, is Stefanik or, uh, or, or Scalise. The question, the, the question is, again, Kevin might survive if – his the, the, the thing Kevin McCarthy has going for him – is that his enemies are probably just as incapable of getting the votes as he is, is, is the best way I could put it. What a time to be alive and to cover Congress, my friend. You, you, my friend, have good job security because this is going to be one of the crazier two-year periods in the history of the United States Congress. Uh, Eric Garcia, we always appreciate it. Let folks know where they can find and follow you. Promote the book. We didn't touch on it today, but you did an article a little while back on uh, autism and the electroshock treatment that was just shocking. Make sure you mention that real quick for folks where they can find your book now out in paperback. And yes. how they can follow you until we get you back on her television. Yeah, uh, right here. We're not broken. Change the autism conversation available where every wherever you can get your books. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at your local bookshop, online, IndieBound, whatever. You can also follow me on Twitter at Eric M. Garcia. I wrote an article for the Boston Globe about the fact that Congress finally passed legislation to allow for the end of electroshock therapy on autistic students. If that makes you go WTF, me too. Um, so, uh, so thank you very much. I always love being on the show. Yeah, you do great work. We'll talk to you soon. Keep your head down up there, brother. You keep them straight.
All right. You see you soon. See you, Eric. Welcome back to her tell. Okay. New face. Love having these. Another great young voices contributor. Although she's kind of like me, we're kind of pushing the term a little bit, but we're happy to be there. Elizabeth Grace Matthews, well-educated, went to every school in Pennsylvania, except for Pitt. So we're going to call her a friend. How are you, ma'am? Glad to see you. Great. Thank you so much for having me on. Thrilled to have you. Uh, she went to University of Pennsylvania, Penn State, St. Joe's. Uh, she's one of those right-hand Pennsylvania folks, the Philadelphia area. Let's start right there, though. We're going to talk a little education today. Let's start a little big picture here, though. This is one of those things that came out of COVID because we can't talk education without COVID because COVID changed how everybody viewed education. Actually, let's rephrase that. That's the first time a lot of people paid attention to education. Let's just be real right here, right? We know one of the biggest problems out of COVID was the poorest among us, the least advantaged, disparate people groups. Those folks got absolutely hammered with school closures. You have a piece out in the uh, Post-Gazette in Pittsburgh. This goes into the school choice argument directly because those kids didn't have a choice when it came to public education. There's the school choice movement that's going on. There's a gap here. We've got to close this gap up between the poorest among us, the least advantaged among us, and getting them better options for school. That's really the long and the short of the problem here, isn't it? Yes, it really is. And and part of what I'm sort of talking about here is that the rest of us already have these options, and we always have. We are able to make choices about where we live. We're able to make choices um, about where we send our children to school if we live in a place where We'd rather pay for a private or parochial school than send our children to the public school. Some people homeschool, um, but and, and more people are homeschooling than ever um, after COVID because a lot of people were forced into homeschool during COVID. But those choices are really hard if you don't have the financial capacity to pay for school or to live where you want or have two incomes so that one of you can maybe work less. Um, if you're a single parent or if you just don't have the the financial capacity or resources to move, it can be really, really tough. And you're sort of trapped in in schools that maybe aren't performing the way that you wish they were. Um, and that's why there's so many children that are on wait lists for scholarships um, in, in Philadelphia, where I'm from, as well as across the country. Yeah. So let's talk about this because poverty is never going to go away. We're going to keep working on it, but, you know, th that's always going to be a problem. There's always going to be the haves and the have-nots. You just you just laid it out. The people that have means, they they already vote with their feet. They already have, you know, look, there's a reason on the, the real estate websites, the number one thing looked at is school districts, right? It's a selling point for home. It's just the way it's always going to be. So how do we do this? There's no way to get into how do you do this without dispersing money. And when you're talking about public education, you're talking about tax dollars, you're talking about our money. That's where this gets sticky in a hurry, because when it gets to the money, everybody's going to argue where the money goes. But there's no way around the money in this problem, is there? There really isn't, unfortunately. And, you know, I certainly have no problem with public school. I think a lot of people don't have problems with public school. But I send my children to parochial school because I prefer 
them to be in a school where I know they're getting the kind of education I want them to get and where it's an environment where I feel that I can um, have access to leaders that I want to have access to. You know, some school districts, even if they're good ones or even if they're okay ones, they are so big that some parents feel they're not heard or they're not able, um, especially during COVID, to have their concerns brought to bear about schools being open or not. And so I think that um, for the students that are in the districts where it has been generations now of disinvestment and also misinvestment, right? So we're spending a good amount of money per student in some of the districts where the outcomes are the worst. And we're doing that despite the fact that more money doesn't always solve the problems because it's not just how much money, it's um, the ways that we're using it or not to benefit students' outcomes. And so whether the, it's because they're smaller or because there are other um, incentives for students to attend them based on scholarships or because the parents that are getting their students into private or parochial schools are also bringing other resources to bear. You know, it's really hard for the people that are, are the most stuck and those are the people that need help the most. And so those are the ones for whom school choice with either educational um, savings plans or with um, tax credits to, to get scholarships to attend those schools can be the most helpful. Elizabeth Grace Matthews joining us. There's a class problem here too, not just a poor problem because school choice, you know, let's be honest here, it becomes a middle class and up debate because those are the people that can kind of afford to pay for product. So then it gets back into this thing with the poor. You covered in your piece about this. There is some cross pol there is some cross politics to this. This is cutting across party lines. It's cutting across ideological lines in some areas because wanting the best for your children is a universal concept. How do we get it out of that rut of probably middle class, upper middle class up being that kind of an issue and bridging that gap, not just with the money, but with the perception of it, of this is something that needs to be for everybody, not just the very rich, not just for the middle class of means that are trying to climb the ladder or whatever you want to. If you have a kid going to school, they should have a better option of school. Thank you so much. That's a great question. And I think we are doing that. I mean, I think the National School Choice Week that just occurred highlighted that a lot of states are putting more options for school choice on the books. And I think that COVID really highlighted nationwide the depth and breadth of this problem because it wasn't just about um, the school outcomes, which obviously the test scores fell dramatically during COVID across a lot of public school districts in the country, particularly in those where parents were working, children weren't in school. So I'm not sure what else could have possibly happened, right? You're going to have those, those gaps and it, it makes achievement gaps bigger between people with socioeconomic resources and those without them. So I think that most people are starting to see that this is really the way to go. And I think that particularly parents in those school districts, they, they want that choice. The numbers are pretty significant about which, um, you know, about how high the numbers are in terms of people that want school choice in both political parties and across the country. Yeah. Elizabeth Grace Matthews joining us. You've been in education a lot. You're very well educated. You have a terminal degree. You understand the machinery part of this, right? It's a conveyor belt. 
that's part of the breakdown here too, right? It's not just the school choice and the public school versus private school or homeschooling or micro schools or whatever. This is a disruption to the system as it exists. Now, there's a lot of people who are like, we'll burn the whole system down. Well, we can't do that because even on the best estimates, you're still going to have 90% of kids in public school, right? How do we have this debate where there's a coexistence? Because I think that's really the path forward here that everybody has some options, but part of those options is still going to be needing a healthier public school system. How do we get that coexistence? Because that's really probably going to be the path where you actually get some movement here, right? Absolutely. I think, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom is really the, the way to go for sure. Um, a lot of people love their public schools, whether it's because they moved to a place exactly as you said, where they wanted to be in those schools, or whether because they are in a school that has done a lot to make themselves competitive and make themselves a great place for kids to be, even if they're not in the best district. So this really is on a micro level about individual schools. But exactly as you stated on the system level, it's about making sure that people can choose where to be, whether it's choosing different public schools, not being restricted by their zip code, but perhaps by a broader county, or whether it's using charter schools, which are public schools, but run um, not by public school districts, or choosing private schools, or having the option to receive some funds to facilitate some sort of school and co-op and homeschool. These are all things that we experimented with quite a bit during the pandemic because we had to. Yeah. There's another aspect to this, too. Look, I went to both public and private schools. My children have gone to both. My youngest are in public schools because we're in a good school district. I had those options. I want everybody else to have those options. Some of these options don't hit people right. When you start talking about the lottery system for some of these, especially really um, rural, inner city, things like this, really desperate circumstances, and you've got a lottery that really hits people wrong. It hits me wrong. And I'm all for school choice. It just feels wrong. It feels icky. It's like, this isn't right. There's just slapping school choice on the problem. Isn't going to solve it. There's a lot of nuts and bolts to this. How do we get into the policy parts of this? Cause you can have all the ideology in the world. If it's not implemented correctly, look, there's a lot of bad private schools out there too, right? How do we have the conversation of like, look, it's not enough to just use the terminology. We have to put the work in, whether it's a public school or a private school, there's a big accountability factor because that's something else we learned in COVID too, is when people don't hold accountability, that's when you really start having problems with these education systems. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the lottery systems, you know, obviously it's great. Each kid that can get into a school that will give them better opportunities, that's great for that kid, but it still leaves a lot of kids behind. And, you know, this is the situation that we're forced into in many places where there isn't universal school choice, there aren't vouchers or educational savings plans or ways for every parent to have that option. You know, right now in Philadelphia, we're spending way more than the average parochial school, at least, and some private schools spend per student. 
and yet the outcomes for public schools are not great. And so I think that giving parents access to actual funds, right, whether they want to um, live in a school district where they use those funds to, to go to their public school, which is fine, or whether they want to use those funds to, to pay for some other option. And I think in particular, um, some states, I believe Arizona is one, and there, there are definitely some others, also offer funds for the use of co-ops or of online options or things of that nature, which I think broadens the scope and possibilities for each family. So I do agree with you. I think there has to be universal access to funds. It can't just be, okay, one out of every you know 20 kids is going to get this opportunity and we'll call it a day. Yeah, Elizabeth Grace Matthews joining us. We were joking about it before we started. The numbers, people just roll their eyes at it, whether it's economics or politics or education or whatever. We're just numb to the numbers. So we can throw out all the stats in the world. I think the more, the better path forward here, though, is telling some of the stories of these students. Because like we just said, you know, the funding numbers, everybody, you know, it's it's a massive amount of money and we're not getting a return on the investment. You just touched on it. The system is the system. The bureaucracy is the bureaucracy. How do we tell the story of these kids, both the success stories and the horror stories, to kind of get people re-engaged in the education system? Because I think what COVID showed was people are disengaged. They were disinterested in the entirety of the system. Once it affected their kids, now they got engaged. Shouldn't we be doing more storytelling of the actual students here, the ones that need a better school or the ones that are having successful school? I think that might be a better way policy forward telling those stories than just throwing out raw numbers. Yes, I think that's that's definitely true. Um, I think that, you know, obviously this is a place where local journalism is super helpful in terms of people actually getting on the ground and, and telling stories of individuals. Um, I remember back when I was in, I either college or high school, the documentary Waiting for Superman came out. And that was extremely powerful for a lot of people that care about this issue. Um, my husband happened to grow up in the worst school district in the state of Ohio, and his parents were able to cobble together parochial school um, funds for four kids. But that's, you know, they were able to do that. And it was really a struggle for them to do that. And a lot of people that grew up where he grew up, their parents didn't have that ability. And you know, my husband and I met at the University of Pennsylvania and he's a lawyer and those things are obviously because, you know, he was able to to do them, but it's also because he had the opportunity to do them, which a lot of people don't have. And um, as he's been involved in this work over, over the years, I know telling that story and telling the stories of others he knows in similar circumstances has been really powerful. Yeah, I, one of my good friends, you know, grew up very poor, became a lawyer. But it wasn't because they were rich. It's because they, you know, took student loans off their tail, worked their tail off, got some scholarships and put themselves through school. Those kind of stories, though, I find education. And I wrote about this recently. I think education is one of those like a lot of complex problems. We need a whole lot more all of the above than just the pet project fixes that we do more and more and more. How do we get to that place? How do we communicate this? Because there is a little bit of danger. We already touched on it. School choice is getting buzzwordy and we're kind of losing it and it's become a political viable thing. It raises a lot of money. Let's be honest here. How do we keep the focus on the goal of it going forward? Not just school choice, but education, student centered education. How do we change our language and the communication of this thing going forward so that we keep moving the ball forward, 
for the children, right? The thing that blows all this up anyway, but actually mean it when we say it. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, a great point. And I think a lot of it is the fact that you're absolutely right. When we say education, people go deaf to it because some people care about it. Some people don't. People care about it only when it affects their kids. When people don't care, they just move on from it. It's not a thing that affects everyone, right? Um, because some people feel, well, I already raised my kids or I don't have kids or whatever the case might be. But it really does affect everyone because it's also an economic issue and um, a socioeconomic, um, you know, equality issue. And when I say equality, I don't mean everyone having the same amount of money. I mean, everyone having the opportunity to make their lives what they want to make them. And, um, you know, we have a knowledge economy now. We're, we're about to have a post whatever the economy is that we had after the industrial economy. That's going away. We're going to have whatever the next thing we're going to call it is. And, you know, in this technological knowledge economy that we have, we need people that are able to read, write, reason in, in ways that um, perhaps 50 years ago wasn't as necessary as it is now because of all the jobs that use skills that we no longer teach that um, that have gone away. And so jobs that are, are going to be coming online are jobs that are going to require people to be able to have those skills of literacy and numeracy and, and reason. And these are things that we should all be worried about as, as a country. Um, in addition, I do think there's room. A lot of people talk about more vocational education, about um, making students able not just to have the choice of a school district or of a better school or something like that, but also have the choice of, you know, I know I want to be an electrician or I know I want to be, you know, whatever the case might be and, and be able to track myself into doing that so that we wind up being able to fill some of the, the job vacancies that will come online in the next, you know, many years. Yeah, Elizabeth Grace Matthews, always an important topic. We talk education a lot on this program. We're going to keep talking about it because it's never going to go away because we got to keep educating our kids. How we do that says a lot about our government and our society and all of us. So we're going to keep talking about it. It's a great piece. It's in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. We're going to link to the entire piece. Make sure you read it yourself. Till we get you back on the program to talk again, let folks know where they can find you, how they can follow you, and how they can keep up with you till we see you again on Hurt Tell. Thank you so much. Um, I am on Twitter at Elizabeth G. Matt, and I'm also on Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, if you Google, you'll find me. Yep, we're going to do the links to all that. You can see your social media on the lower third graphic if you're watching on the video. Elizabeth Grace Matthews, thank you so much for the time, ma'am. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, ma'am. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, this is going to be good because we spent a couple of months trying to get this together and finally got him here. Tanner Aliff is joining us. He does healthcare research for Cicero Institute. He's going to tell us more about that in a little bit. Tanner, how are you? Great to finally have you on the program, my friend. It's doing great. Doing great. We just came off of Texas Freeze, so out of power for about four days. So that was fun. But now I'm happy in the clam, getting ready to work in session. See, a true story. I'm a mountain kid. So, I'm, you know, January, you didn't go to school. We just had snow. I grew up in the mountains. Uh, my first duty station in the military was Little Rock. 
And the first weekend I was there, they had an ice storm. I'd never been to a, through a southern ice storm before. So I showed up to work and everybody looks at me like, who are you? I'm like, I'm the new guy. They're like, how did you get here? I was like, I drove. And they're like, we're in shelter in place for the ice storm. I'm like, for this? But yeah, <laughs> people down south don't like ice storms. That's a fact. Glad everything's good down there. Let's talk <laughs> a little health care. This is, this is what you do. We were talking about it before, but I want you to explain to me like I'm five because I have trouble with this stuff. We've turned healthcare costs from a really serious problem and a serious policy issue and a government issue into a buzzword that means absolutely nothing. Healthcare costs is a really big deal. Healthcare costs, the term doesn't mean anything. Let's break that down a little bit because what the real problems here are, we don't understand what we're dealing with unless you, well, are you talking about insurance costs? Are you talking about what the hospital needs to cover their expenses? Are you talking about what the doctors charge the hospital in those agreements? Are you talking about what the state regulators say you can and cannot do? There is so much in that one term. And until you undo that ball of wax, all the rest of this, you're really just kind of chasing shadows, aren't you? No, pretty much. It's kind of sad. I talked to a few uh, hospital executives before on my talking like CFO level individuals. And, uh, you know, when I go to ask them like, so like, what's like just brass tacks, like how much does it take to actually perform like an ACL reconstruction? If you're playing pick up basketball and you tear it, you know, and they just truly don't have any gauge or depth half the time or really any reference. Like very few hospitals are actually really good at accounting. And so when we talk about costs, it's not like, you know, when we're like talking about groceries or mechanics or ordering parts, right? We're able to factor in like the raw materials, the manufacturing, the distribution, everything and get to like a whole number. Healthcare, that's not the case whatsoever, right? And then like the fact when you, when you factor in like the fact that we are like patients, right? The primary consumers of healthcare aren't paying for like the actual goods and services are not the primary payers of those goods and services. You don't, you're like also factoring those third parties and we have no really reference anymore when we're talking about costs. Like it's uh, it's pretty much the point where if you ever heard the term like a charge master list, right? That's like made a price and there's a difference between cost and price. But to me at this point, uh, unlike other industries, cost is just as ambiguous as price now. And like, cause usually with price you make a difference because you get to like dictate what it is, what your product, what your service is going to cost your patrons. but there's just uh, the calculation. You'd, you'd be horrified if you sat down and talked to some folks. Yeah. Here's the part of this that folks here, the business end of this is really hard for folks to get a hold of. They see things like if you live rurally, you see rural hospitals shutting down or consolidating or going to, a lot of them are going to a regional system where you'll have a hub, you know, almost a hub and spoke system of healthcare, which we can debate how healthy that is, but that's the business model right now. If you're in an urban environment, it's the same way. You know, the big hospitals are getting bigger and the small ones are kind of disappearing. Clinics are changing. Urgent cares are coming up different ways. That's the practical side that people can get their hands on. But that's a reflection of all those things you just talked about, right? The business side of this is driving the patient care side of this. That's just what people see. What should they be looking at? Is it the rise of urgent care? Is it not just the bills that they get and they understand that, just the practical access to care? Because they can see that. They can see the hospitals changing. They can see the urgent care is getting built, right? I, whenever it comes to like trying to give advice for people to kind of wade into American healthcare, I think it's a hard it's a hard sell right now to try to get people to think about the actual care they're consuming as terms of quality, right? Like what what's the difference between two MRIs? What's the difference between one uh, the urgent care doing stitches and the hospital doing stitches? Probably not much. 
but people sometimes get really hesitant because I think we've been alienated for so long from having a reference on quality or cost or the business of healthcare in America. And so I think a lot of folks are just really squeamish, but trying to get back to your kind of like question here, like what would I recommend people to kind of parse out, realize that like payment here, like a, doesn't always equal access, right? Because we have that physical problem, right? We have so we have shortages out there with primary care stuff in the rural settings. We have specialty care in some metropolitan areas. It's uh, it it looks different. That to me, like we have the physical access problems, but we also have another financial access problem, right? And if people want to be able to better navigate the American healthcare system, I would really recommend like trying to understand. Like I'm talking again, it's so bad. Like people have been so alienated uh, just having someone else pick uh, their health insurance for them. I think, I think it was like I saw a crazy poll that less than uh, 4% of Americans know what a premium is, a deductible is, coinsurance, and out-of-pocket maximum, like the four basic health insurance nouns. And uh, because of that, I just think that uh, when we like when, when people don't know how to use networks, people don't know how to see if one like health, like hospital systems connected to their health insurance, if they're going to get covered, they don't know who's out of network. They don't even know all the different like low cost options out there because they're always getting phoned to where their insurance company tells them to go through the coverage. Right. And so I think what, like, no matter how you kind of approach the, like the air quote healthcare market, you're going to be kind of confused as a patient really. Yeah, Tanner Aleph joining us. All right, your undergrad was in cognitive neuroscience. So explain the cognitive dissonance here. We have this <laughs> whole issue of medical care is essential to keep you from dying. It's a life or death issue. It really is. It's not hyperbole to say it's a life or death issue. So, of course, people go, well, it's life and death. It should be free. Well, there's no such thing as free. It's got to be paid for by somebody. And people that do that really well want to be paid for the services of it. This is the disconnect, right? They just on the basic human level, it's like, okay, this is all life and death stuff, but it's also big business. Plus you have government regulation because you got to, because it's life and death, boy, this is just a big circle to square. And that's really at the heart of all these issues. Just trying to get our minds around that one little bit of it. No, I definitely say that, uh, healthcare demand is definitely not elastic. There'll always be a presence for it. Like, I mean, it's just as insatiable as your need for water, right? At one point in your life, you're probably going to need to consume healthcare services. But the one thing that I get a little frustrated about is when I actually talk to people about like, why do you have like health insurance per se, right? I always hear like this over kind of buying of coverage. Like, I think I've talked about like 28 just anecdotally friends and they're like, oh yeah, I'm paying around like $4,000, $6,000 healthcare premiums. I'm like, how, how many times did you go to the doctor last year? They're like twice. I'm like, for what? Physicals? I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, like, is that... $6,000 actually worth the visit. And I don't think a lot of people would try to understand that since you're not the primary payer of your own healthcare, right? You are deferring for someone else to make deals for you. And that those entities, like the insurance company is supposed to making deals for you and being the actual customer of healthcare is not trying to lower costs for you. And I don't think that we've had a great conversation with Americans in our own, like in our own, like closed doors, like what's my real concern or risk? And depending on when I come to that answer, who do I partner up with to get the best like deals and health outcomes, right? If you got a chronic issue and you um, get, consume a lot of healthcare, if you have some other like acute accident stuff, or you know that you might be at risk of it, you have a really hectic job, it makes a lot of sense to have some of the higher premium dollar coverage from like a PPO plan that can just cover you traditionally with a wide network. But um, when it comes to, if you're just like, you know, I'm pretty healthy. I exercise in my broccoli and I only go to the doctor 
twice a year. I'm like, maybe you should go on HSA. Maybe you don't need to lose all your dollars in premiums and can take your uh, Timmy to get braces and your wife out to Fiji, right? Like, um, I, I just like, like I, th I think like a good thing here that we could really just tell people is like, ask yourself, like, where am I at realistically with my health? What can I control? What can I improve? When then admit to yourself, where can I not control? Where can I not improve? And when for those areas that you can't control, like look at the different forms of health insurance out there, the alternatives, like the, there's like crowdsourcing now, there's direct primary care, but if you need something that's like an actual hospital system or an ASC, like just make sure that's actually in your network, right? And like just kind of do a little bit of due diligence. And I think you'd see kind of people being able to dodge some of those crazy astronomical medical bills we hear about for simple stuff. Yeah, Tanner Aylip joining us. This is more of the same problem, though. Those are all, everything you just said was great. That's for the folks that have options. There's always this cohort of folks that are not going to have options either because of their situation or poverty or whatever. They don't have options. Mm -hmm. Somehow, people buzzword this into healthcare being one size fits all. Healthcare is never going to be one size fits all because you're going to have haves and have nots. You got people that can pay, people that can't pay. And then you got this big middle of folks that can pay a certain amount, but not too much. So how much care do they get? That's another core thing that we don't talk about enough. Like you were saying, in our conversations like, look, somewhere in here, we have to be able to take care of everybody, but everybody has different needs and different abilities. How do we square that circle? That's a good question. I've been really thinking about this because like, I think uh, you probably been following the news, right? Like Medicaid, the government health insurance that's partnered with your states, run by your state, uh, that usually covers pe like low income individuals, typically the group that would struggle financially to be able to access care or get care. Um, we've seen enrollment just skyrocket after the pandemic and we saw like the turbulence with unemployment. But uh, we can offload people and try to bolster those programs up. I think a lot of legislators are talking about that. I, I heard a joke not too long ago that some folks here in Texas were trying to look at Medicaid to cover nutritional plans and get, if people eat broccoli. And uh, just like stuff like that, even though we have SNAP and other benefits. When it comes to trying to construct something that might be able to help, one thing I've been really visiting, particularly like to address all those people that maybe not have the means or they're in a really like kind of like no access point, is we can talk about like uh, like uh, transportation and getting some like mobile wheels out there and getting to bring like the care to the people. But you know that's a different problem. I think we can focus on the money here a little bit and just uh, talk about, for example, that most hospitals in America are actually nonprofits, right? Like disproportionately, like it's like a little like sh north of like sixty-seven percent, meaning that all of them to be nonprofits have to produce a financial assistance policy, and in those financial assistance policies, they usually set pretty high, like around like somewhere like above Medicaid expansion rate or like one hundred thirty-eight plus or one hundred fifty percent the federal poverty rate, which means a lot of Americans through the hospitals without insurance should be getting financial assistance. Where I'm talking like completely free uncompensated care or they get a heavy discount that actually makes healthcare somewhat in the ballpark of doable even for people with less than two thousand dollars in savings so like 
I like the, the problem that we like we haven't seen the uptake of this right from those from those hospitals even though you hear about all like you know Providence Health donates this or does this is that uh, I think it's like the evidence only come out recently about like last three years that most of these uh, groups uh, when you look at their tax exemptions that's why they've become nonprofits right um, I think they give out less than I think the average is one in three hospitals gives out less than one point four percent of their operating revenue or expenses meaning that uh, for the layman hospitals are getting multi-million dollar tax breaks because they're expected to use those savings to take care of like folks that have trouble accessing care and they're not doing it right and and again like this is like this isn't like your local rural nonprofit hospital critical access hospital we're talking the upper quartile people which should be able to like have their tendrils because they have such a huge system out there providing tons of free care that could aid some of the government programs out there but they're not holding up their side of it i think that's like a complete loss and like those folks that you're talking about in those unique circumstances not getting access aren't reaching them yeah tanner Aleph joining us this is part of something that's kind of new to the healthcare debate a lot of this stuff is things that people have been debating since the dawn of time you know how does healthy people take care of the unhealthy people that's that's the long and the short of it right that's ever since there's been more than three or four people there's been that conversation there is part of this that's new now we have new things through both technology and just changing society and culture. We have things like charity care. We have things like crowdfunding. We have things like telehealth. There is new parts to this healthcare debate. Are we doing a good job of pushing the ball forward, of talking about the new things that could act like stuff like telehealth? No, it doesn't solve every problem, but it solves some problems. Things like crowdfunding. No, that's not scalable to everybody. But yes, you got to figure that in because when you just look at the dollar amounts, it's pretty substantial. The charity stuff you just said with the hospitals, the percentages, those sorts of things. It seems like we spend a lot of time in the roads talking about the same old debates without pushing the ball forward. And like, OK, how do we start implementing some of this new stuff into the old arguments so that we actually get even if it's incremental progress, at least we're inching forward. I think we're missing the mark a lot. Um, I think that uh, when it comes to our established parties, Democrat, Republican, we're still kind of bent up on this whole idea of like trying to develop like a single pancea, that one magic bullet, the, the holy grail play, right? That's gonna be some new type of system that's going to fix the flaws with the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Republicans have very different visions, uh, Democrats and other liberal and progressive minds really want single payer, which is a completely different vision, right? And I, I, to me, it's like, uh, I don't think people realize sometimes how powerful the insurance and hospital lobbies are at the federal level. And even though like people, I mean, the single, single payer might seem really catchy as a term, but I don't know if it has the legs. I also don't think it's okay, you know, because I think uh, back when the Affordable Care Act was established and Republicans took some, took a good amount of flack for uh, just saying, oh yeah, insurance companies should allow that should, should be allowed not to take up that person with cancer. And I think everyone disagreed with that and they lost on that issue very much, very much so. But what I'm trying to get to right now is saying that there are these things that are able to make the current status quo better, like living in an Obamacare era world where we can employ telehealth and crowdfunding and we can use price transparency and we can use charity care. The thing that's happening though is that we just went through like the last 30 or 40 years of people being alienated on the consumption of healthcare, understanding a cost of healthcare, knowing how to pay for healthcare, right? And we're expecting all these consumer, all these patients, all these people with real problems and like really high demand just to get thrown into markets to get like overloaded and fire, like fire hose with a bunch of like information and plan deductible 
types of stuff, trying to navigate like uh, a hospital's mental health system. Like you just, we like gave no one any legs here. And even though there's technically information's increasing in new tech and new abilities and new infrastructure is being built to help people get to a lower price and get at the quality they need, it's still not, there's no incentive for us to be present, right? There's no incentive for me to actually try to spend the extra two hours to look over my like my employer's health insurance plan or to really be like, do I need Medicaid or to try to like look at a few different doctors in my area to see who can give me my best surgery, right? With, for, for a particular issue. We don't have a time for that. And it's, I think that people see as such a burden is because it's new. And I think that there's policy out there. That's why I'm working at the Cicero Institute that is trying to create those incentives for the first time. joining us let's be real about this stuff though a lot of this is going to go through congress and the government either regulatory wise or a bill wise or policy wise you you've been in that position you've done some congressional work for folks before just briefly take folks behind the scenes though because we talk about this you know you you're at cicero so you talk about it that way i talk about it in kind of a populist way on you know media things when it gets to the nitty gritty of actually making legislation, this is really a heavy ball going up a very steep hill because this has all got to get in black and white. It's not just buzzwords. You've been behind that curtain, though. Just explain to folks how big a lift that is and the challenge that is involved there. Yeah. So I've worked on Capitol Hill for it was about a little over just like just shy of two years. And I remember when I first showed up, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. We're going to get so much stuff done. It's going to be a big boon in my career. I'm so happy. I'm so cool wearing my little suits in my little office here in Rayburn. Um, got to tell you, you got maybe like two months in and realized that, uh, yeah, there's never a moment where your member or your boss just comes up to you and they're like, hey, Tanner, like, what's your new idea to fix like the entire American healthcare system, right? That, that, that people like, I love constituents too, man. Cause I used to, like, uh, when I was, when I first started out before I kind of got layer up the food chain there was taking those calls. And I just broke my heart because so many people would call in the office and they would just try to pitch these ideas as if like lobbyists don't exist as if like think tanks like me and other groups aren't trying to pitch all these, uh, overwhelmed, like, uh, like Congress folks, staff, with ideas, right? And it's just never an idea is true. It's not typical. I wouldn't say never, right? It's not good to have an absolute. There's never, it's, it's unusual to see a member of Congress just produce a completely innovative idea of their own accord. They're usually getting outside help. And the thing is, when it comes to looking for the outside help, right? They have campaigns, especially if you're in the house, you're beholden to <laughs> a constituency, but you're more beholden to the election, like the electoral process, right? And a lot of the advertisement in your success is like is is dependent on your endorsement of the private sector, of certain key figures of the community, right? And say you got a hospital, say you got insurance companies in your district, and you try you get elected the first round, 
then you try to create all these like new regulations, transparency clauses. Uh, you want to create price ceilings on them. Like that stuff's not going to stick is because the hospital like lobby is going to walk into that congressperson's office and be like, hey, heard you want to cap knee replacements for the elderly. Uh, and then the, the congressperson would be like, yeah, I do want to do that. And the lobbyists would probably be like, that. Ah, well, I hate to get, see you get primaried, <laughs> you know, like to see you get challenged and like X'd out. People, I just don't think understand like the power or like the, the scope, right? I think it was like hospitals alone, like some hospital associations were forking out like over, they were the third most highest paying lobbying group of like $1.4 billion at the, at the federal level alone, right? That's not including the states. So I just like wanted to point the illusion that like just saying that you have a solution to healthcare or we, we know that some people are doing bad things and trying to slap down on those people, it's probably not gonna go through because like the people in healthcare are giving out the most dollars to members of Congress. And a member of Congress is not going to burn that political capital unless they absolutely have to, or it's existential because their constituency is completely like kind of reordered against them. But for a lot of this too, is like hospitals, man, like they have great reputation. They look, people love them in the community. They were sometimes the biggest employers. They do a lot of great stuff. They do little side stuff. They, you know, they bring in like the birthday equipment for child cancer. Like they have like that image, that rhetoric of looking like a really good group, even though they're, like a good, like the upper quartile revenue generating hospitals are just completely robbing America for the most part. Like, I wish I could like spell it out that there's a solution for that. And I would say that I've seen more success at the state level, right? Because the nice thing about the federal level is even though that my boss never came up to me and asked me for a novel idea, he did ask, what did Texas do? What did Virginia do? What did Tennessee do? A lot of times members of Congress, Senate or House will look to the states like because like the states are the true policy laboratories of America and they're able to just try things out they have smaller jurisdictions so smaller sample populations right they they're able to create policy that addresses their unique needs and I think that a lot of times like uh, the, the federal folks want to see the precedent and if it works well they'll take that idea and they'll try to work with it but I sometimes just going for Congress straight gut like just like go for right for the throat or the artery not gonna really work here I really think that the healthcare should be more of a federalistic or state by state basis where we can get consensus or at least, you know, there could be little custom tailor ads to certain reforms, for example, like the patient's right to save reform working at CISRO. But as long as like 10 states, 15 states pass it and it becomes like a force that's working, it can show that's doing good and the market's affecting, that's when we can have a greater conversation about like kind of teeing up to send to a member of Congress to take seriously and look past the lobbying and being able to get behind something where they won't lose political capital. <laughs> yeah, Tanner Ailiff, join us. You touched on something important. I don't want to skirt by though. When we're talking about these hospital systems, though, we need to understand there's different kinds of hospital systems. Yes. Because certain states, if the main hospital system is based off your public university, you know, which a lot of those are, they're they're the teaching hospital, and that's their, you know, my home state, WVU Medicine. They've started taking over a lot of the regional smaller hospitals. Those people take calls from state officials. Trust me, they will because yeah. they have to. So you actually, even though it's a big conglomerate, because it's a state entity and a state school, that big hospital system, yeah, they will listen to the state government. And they say, so it sounds almost backwards that you might have a little more control that way, but you really would. Now, there's corporate <laughs> ways. There's privatized systems, of course. 
But that's a good lesson for folks to understand. It's like the hospital systems are not monolith. You need to understand which ones you're dealing with because that'll also tell you how to access and approach them if you want to try to get something changed. Yeah, no, hospital, complete umbrella word. There is nuances to all of that. University teaching, critical access, children's, uh, for-profit versus private equity owned. Like, it's just there. There's like this is such a manifold, different lining of them, and I think that you, I think you're right. Is that uh, Andrew? Is that like each one one of them carries a different amount of influence, and there's a different lever to work with them on the state or federal level. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I want to be I want to be bullish like you, and I want to say that like you know because we have like you know we're here in Austin, Texas, right? And we have UT. It's not like many members of the Texas legislature can just go up to UT, go up to UT and be like, "You're going to be honest to charity care now," like, you know that, and that's going to fly. <laughs> so sometimes it really depends on your locality. But you're right; I think people should try it out. Should talk with their members. They can try to see, like, what is like the actual hiccup for some of these pricing things or charity care or costs, right? Like, <laughs> or see if their member can even tell them what cost is. <laughs> but. I mean, yeah, it's a little pie in the sky, but you, you know, a state, some kind of state official is going to get a quicker phone call with a public university system than you know some rando from Bakersfield is going to get Kaiser Permanente on the phone. So you know, no, I agree with that. Definitely, you know, it's all matters. Find out what your healthcare system's at. You know, you should follow it like your politics. Find out where the money goes. Find out who's in charge. Know what you're dealing with, folks. That's the important thing here. Tanner Aleph, we're going to keep having you on and some other folks from Cicero because this is one of those topics that we're always going to have to talk about, right? Because we're all going to need healthcare at some point and we're all going to pay for everybody else's healthcare all the rest of the time, right? So we'll keep talking about this. Let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on, a little bit about Cicero and where they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Yeah, of course. So you can follow me. I always, all my material gets published on the Cicero website. So that's www.ciceroinstitute. Cicero being like the philosophers. So C-I-C-E-R-O institute.org. There's just an about, there's a team page. You'll see my name with my funny little headshot smiling at everybody. <laughs> and then uh, I'd say I, I, I like LinkedIn. So follow me on LinkedIn. You can just type it, literally Google Tanner Aleph LinkedIn. You'll pop up my, see my profile. I put up a lot of work there, a lot of videos, a lot of great stuff. And then, of course, the classic policy death hold Twitter is at TLF5. That's my handle, at T-A-L-I-F-F-5. Tanner, I loved this conversation, enjoyed it. Glad to finally get you in, even though it took us a lot of scheduling juggling, both my fault and yours, not not just, you know, we'll share the share on that one. It is shared, it is shared. Shared, you Austin people just work on a whole different calendar than the rest of America. Let's just be honest yeah. about it. Danner uh, Aleph, loved having you, buddy. We'll do it again soon. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks, sir. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, let's go back overseas. We're going to talk a little Greek politics, and it's all Greek to me, so we're going to get somebody that actually knows about this stuff. I know it's a cheap joke, but it works every time. Uh, Alex Petropoulos, another one of our great Young Voices contributors, new face to the program. Hopefully, it's not the last time we see him. How are you, sir? Great to see you. Thank you for the time. I'm doing very, very well. Thank you for having me on. All right, let's explain to everybody the UK accent, because I introduced you as Greek. 
you're Greek, but you lived and did university and stuff in the UK. This is not all that uncommon. Just real quick, let folks know about you and how you came to love Greek and explain it to people like me. Yeah, so, you know, I've got a Greek dad and I've got a very multinational mum born in the UK, but I've grown up in Greece. So if I'm in one country, I'll call the other my home. And that's usually how it goes. Yeah, that's how it goes. All right. You opened your piece with it. I think it's a good way to open this conversation for folks that aren't super familiar with Greece. And all. look, you can only learn so much of the ins and outs of a political system and a country's politics from afar. Greece is a little different because, you know, we do call it the birthplace of democracy for a reason. Most of the Western tradition of culture comes out of Greece. We've all heard it in school. We've heard it over and over again. Draw me a quick line, though. Ancient Greek to where we are now. I know that's a lot of human history, but what people hear historically and what we're dealing with today, there's threads there, but they're not one and the same. And this is a unique thing for the Greek people right now, right? Yeah. So, I mean, Greece is always sort of coupled with this question of what should its democracy look like? And it's always trying to find the balance between representative democracy and proportional representation and a strong government power. When you want, when you finally decide to elect a government, you want them to have a strong mandate and to be able to actually enact their vision. And so this is a, a debate that's always going throughout Greek politics and Greek culture. Um, the problem is that recently the Greek government has sort of tried to push too far on one end of this debate and tried to swing the balance in its favor in a way that is, is not quite illegal, but is dodgy to say the least. Yeah, and to be fair here, and not disrespectful to anybody here, dodgy politics is a feature, not a bug. You know, there's yeah. a lot of chaos. There's a lot of drama. Um, there's a lot that goes into Greek politics. Let's back up, though, because before we get into the current situation, the recent history is really important here. There's mm -hmm. been a lot of economic turmoil. We know about the bailouts and all that. There's been a lot of yeah. cultural turmoil. The cultural turmoil has boiled over into the political where you have you know, extremist groups that have tried to get power. Some of that's been abated. It's going to be an on-running problem like it is in most countries. Just give us a little bit of the background before we get into this current situation. There's been a lot going on yeah. in Greek policy the last 20 years or so. Greece has been through an adventure, to say the least. Um, so going back to 2010, we had, uh, off the back of the financial crisis, we had the Greek sovereign debt crisis and all the political crises that followed many, many elections. I, I remember when I was in school, it seemed like every weekend we had to stop school for Friday and Monday because there was going to be an election happening and they had to close school. Um, but throughout all this, you know, Greece has sort of gone through its long recession. It went through essentially a 10-year depression. And now it's coming out of that depression. And to be honest, most of the time you're going to hear stories about Greece, they're going to be really optimistic because, you know, the economist... Uh, rated Greece as its unexpected winner of 2022, right? Of all the OECD countries, they were like, Greece, the one that impressed us the most, on the rise. And so whilst as a whole, Greece is taking five steps forward, at the same time, it's important to not lose sight of the steps backwards that it still takes, because there are still problems in the country, even though corruption is at its lowest level since pre-crisis, it still only has a corruption score of 50%, which puts it at about, you know, top 60 in the world. Not too great for an OECD country. Yeah. 
Alex Petrogopoulos joining us. Um, these reforms that you're talking about in your piece, we're going to link to it. Young Voices Europe, uh, New European Bureau, we got a lot of good fresh faces in there. You talk about it in your piece, though. These reforms that we're dealing with today, this is actually stuff from about six, seven years ago, and it's just yeah. now taking effect. So one of our core principles in our program, things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Take us back to that, the 2016 government. What mm -hmm. happened there that it put in these new rules about supermajorities and how to change things? Yeah. So the Greek constitution was codified a while back, and it said in that, you know, if you ever want to change something with the election system, that can only take place in two elections time, which seems like a quite decent rule. You stop governments coming in and suddenly rigging the system for their next election. So going back all the way to 2016, the left government, Syriza, came into power, um, you know, dealing with all the bailout stuff. And they one of their popular policy mandates was to push through fully proportional representation. So if you get 5% of the vote, you get 5% of the seats in parliament. They passed that 20, 2016. All good. Three years later, 2019, the center-right New Democracy government wins. And they're like, you know, we actually prefer the old system. We're moving it back to a system that benefits us, that distills and takes away minority representation. And it pushes it to the larger parties like themselves, and it props them up artificially. So that's the history. The 2016 changes are coming into play now, this election, 2023. The yeah. issue is that they might not stay around for long. Right. Alex Papadopoulos joining us. Here's the thing with this is just to give the other side of the argument for you to explain to folks. They're pushing this as a form of strong and stable government. That's the quote from your piece. Yeah. They got a point. We opened up with it. There's been a lot of chaos. There's a lot mm -hmm. of turnover. There's been a lot of corruption, although that's better. The economic situation is better. So the argument for strong and stable has a strong argument. Of mm -hmm. course, we're both students of history. We understand strong and stable has also been the entry-level card to all kinds of bad forms of government because they're like, oh, well, we can't change because then accountability goes out the window. How do you balance those two things, especially in a country that's kind of finding its political footing right now? Because you do need strong and stable, but you don't want that tipping over into where you have a permanent majority, which is the fear, right? Yeah. So to clear things up, like the principle of them deciding to change it back, if the people voted for them, that's completely fine. That's a natural and healthy functioning of us just having this balance and this swinging between strong and stable, fully proportional. The problem is the way in which they want to get about that. Because what they're doing is they're essentially saying, we're going to run this one election, probably going to be in April. No one's going to get a majority. And then we're going to immediately run a second one. And what that essentially does is it takes this rule in the constitution that says that your rules have to lag by one. They have to only apply in the second election to come. And it throws that out the window. It, it technically gets around it. You're just running a second election, but in, it really goes against the full spirit of the constitution. And you're really just slamming through your changes far quicker than they're supposed to. So, I mean, they, they have their um, reinforced proportionality. They have their stable government for them, but it will come into play in the next election. And so the democratic thing to do is just wait for that election to come by. Yeah. Here's the thing, too. You talk about it. Look, governments are people. People have human nature. Human nature is undefeated. You talk about it in your piece. And we're going to link to the piece. Make sure you read the whole thing. 
there's got to be strong incentives to get government to function properly. Mm -hmm. What are the incentives right now that are driving this? Not just the political of we want the old system. There's incentives, reasons why they want to move back and forth, right? What are the incentives right now that are pushing people to have this debate in the first place? Because it really gets to the core of why you want to change it. Because let's be honest, the next time the next group gets in power, they're going to have the same debate again, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that just means getting into the nitty gritty of what the system is. The debate is between fully proportional representation, so 5% of the vote, 5% of the seats, or a system where out of 300 seats, you get up to a bonus 50 seats that just props up the winning party, and it essentially moves the bar from needing 50% of the vote to win a majority government down to around 39% of the vote to win a majority government. And that, And so... What this means practically is it's a question of, do you want a coalition government? Do you want to have to share power? And do you want to have to essentially trade political favors in order to get anything done? Because in previous times, that has been, you know, you get into a coalition and the way you get that coalition, you say, I'm going to give you the Ministry of Defense and I'm going to give you the Ministry of Environment. And then you can end up with maybe some crazy far-right party being given the defense ministry to you know satisfy their ultra-nationalistic egos or whatever and that can have some dangerous consequences so there are arguments to be heard on both sides right Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. joining us 
here we go back to this almost turns into a circle when you're discussing but look these problems are not unique to the greeks this is something no. that every government that has representation deals with how do you deal with that that give and take you're just talking about horse trading we talk talk you know just the give and take of politics like i'm going to give you this you're going to give me this we're going to compromise and we'll get this policy in mm -hmm. you have to have that to make things work but at the yeah. same time and you touch in it on your piece that also gives the sitting politicians and the current leadership a very now driven focus because it really makes them focus on the now good government mm -hmm. has to focus past the now how do you get past this next election how do you get past the next four six eight years if you're having this argument those things start going by the board and the propensity is you're going to wind up with the same problem all over again right that's the concern yeah and and i think you're really right about that long term because let's say you're someone who really believes in this system of strong government the next election will Sorry, not the next, the one after next election will have that system. It's already in the law. It will just take two elections time. So realistically, you could be in a position like I am, to be honest, where I think, you know, next four years, maybe I'm okay with that strong, stable government to get us, you know, really accelerate us out of the crisis and sort of grow the economy really strongly. But after that, I want proportional representation. I want them to be held accountable. And so if we want to really argue for that balance, we have to sort of say, okay, this election we'll have this system. Next election, we've got to swap. So let's vote for one party this election, have them change the election system, and then just have a new election again, right? Yeah, Alex Petrov is joining us. That's the political side. That's the legislative side, the parliamentarian side. What's the appetite of the people right now? Because even though this is a parliamentarian government, so it's a little one step isolated from like what we do in America, where we throw out our Congress every two years for elections. What's the appetite of the people with this? Is there a little bit of um, is there a little bit of weariness to the back and forth here? Is there a little whiplash from wanting to change the system back already? What's the appetite of the people right now? Because that's probably going to be the deciding factor in all this, right? Well, I mean, for one, people. It is it is quite a weird effect having the delayed onset of these changes because this is the first time Greeks will have proportional representation since 1989. So for many Greeks, they don't know what that looks like. So I don't think they're necessarily burnt out and tired of all the changes. I think that the results of this first election and then running a second could undermine the will of the Greek people for having proportional representation because it's sort of paints this picture of, picture of you can never form majorities without this uh, strong and stable system. But at the same time, you've got to look at things through another lens, which is that the current government has been going through somewhat of a scandal and a crisis at the moment. It's sort of been dubbed by international media and local media as Greek Watergate, right? And there's this big scandal of the national um, intelligence agency in Greece has been spying, essentially, and setting up wiretaps on opposition uh, members of parliament and also prominent journalists. And so there's been a lot of, you know, tension within opposition parties. There have been a lot of accusations being thrown left and right. So the general air of the government isn't trying to mess us over and isn't trying to undermine democracy and democratic values, there's already a lot of uh, subtext and pre-existing tension there yeah 
let's touch on history there real quick. The subtext there is if you go back in the history far enough, you go back, you know, to the late sixties, early seventies, the military ruling in Greece for folks that aren't familiar, that memory is fading, but that's still living memory, especially for probably a lot of the, the ruling class, those folks in their sixties mm-hmm. and seventies that really have a lot of the power and the money in the country right now. That's a formative experience for them. Just real quick for folks that aren't familiar with it. There's a reason something like that, even though corruption's a little bit better, something like a wiretapping scandal. That's why that kind of gets people's feathers up. That That's just kind of an ingrained thing for that generation. Right? Yeah. It, it sets off alarm bells. It, the, the parallels of, scary obviously no one's suggesting that the government's trying to do something like what happened in the 70s with the military junta where the military essentially took control of the government and greece became a a military controlled state for about a decade and it was the trigger for all of the mess that happened in cyprus uh and it you know i don't have to really go on to tell to tell people why that'd be a bad thing but it's such a core um, it's such a core memory for so many Greek people. I mean, not for myself, because I only read about it in history books. And you know, every year when we com- commemorate the atrocities of that time, we talk about it. So I guess it's polarizing for students and it's polarizing for that older class. But there's that middle gap that maybe doesn't quite remember it and doesn't quite take, see it the same way. Yeah, it could be. Alex Petropoulos. Let's talk about the here and now real quick, though. That's internal Greek politics. There's a lot going on outside of Greece right now. There's the never-ending fussing with the Turks going on, which has flared mm-hmm. up recently. You mentioned Cyprus. Cyprus is still a problem. Uh, of course, the economic situation, um, the, Greece, like everybody else, is keeping an eye on Ukraine and Russia. That's a complicated relationship with the Greek government. Mm-hmm. What's the external stuff going on outside of this that both the Greek government and the Greek people are kind of keeping an eye on? And is that going to be unifying things or is that going to be divisive things as this government's trying to kind of find its footing for what they're going to do electoral-wise? Yes. I mean, that's why I actually, I just finished writing up an op-ed on this, um, in fact, but it was going to go up, but it's been paused because of the, um, the earthquake in Turkey. And, you know, that may end up, reshifting how everyone thinks about this because in the lead up in the run-up to the turkish and the greek elections there's been really an elevation of tensions but since the earthquake happened in turkey that killed many people the first people to call and respond and say we're here to help we're here to we're we're sending first responders we're sending um, helicopters filled with medics and firefighters was greece right and so maybe this event will actually go to sort of soften tensions and ameliorate some of the concerns. That being said, maybe within a month, things will be back to how they were. And then if we talk about how things were and how things will be probably in a month, we're really looking at a Greece that is aiming to redefine its geostrategic location within the world. And it's sort of aiming to fill a Turkey-sized hole in NATO, right? 
in the sense that Greece is becoming increasingly important for NATO in sending troops up through Bulgaria and Romania into NATO. It's becoming increasingly important to sort of act as an airbase for sort of NATO projecting its power into the Middle East. So if you look at a lot of things that the government has been doing, the Greek military budget was 2.8% of GDP in 2020. In 2021, that went up to 3.9% of GDP and down to 3.75. So there's been a massive, massive spending on military. So clearly the current government sort of sees itself as filling this hole within NATO in the Southeast and within the Southeast of the Med and sort of aiming to sort of be the anchor state within the Mediterranean for NATO. And so obviously it, would have, it has to win its next election to do that. And that maybe would sort of play into why it would want the stability to be able to sort of, how can it call and claim to be providing stability for the South of Europe if it can't provide stability within its own form of government? Yeah, good points. <sighs> Alex Pedrop, excuse me, Alex Petropol. <laughs> See, I got all the way through it, and I can't say it. Alex Petropolis, uh, joining us. One last question, kind of put a bow on this, and you you almost did it right there, just in explaining that the Greek relationship with Europe has always been complicated. It's ingrained. It's not going away. You know, the the friendship. We'll put it politely with Turkey. That's not going to change anytime soon, especially with the current leadership in that country. Mm-hmm. What's the immediate future for the next few years? Because it looks like, you know, economically, you just started out with it. You know, they the projections are the economy's improving, the corruption's down, even with this wiretap scandal, but corruption's down, so that's kind of made it a big deal. That's kind of a self-fulfilling mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. You What's know. the future of Greece the next few years? Not just the NATO stuff, but just kind of coming out of this real turbulent area. Do you think they continue to ascend or is this going to be a plateau or is this a peak? Where do you think we are here for the next few years? Yeah, I think I think the phrase that sums it up really great is five five steps forward, one step backwards. And, you know, even if you look back into 2019, that's when we started coming out of the crisis and then COVID hit. So it's sort of been a COVID ended up prolonging the crisis and prolonging the economic depression longer than it should have been. But the country is rearing to recover and is rearing to keep growing. And I think that I think Greece is definitely going to be on the rise. I think that it will possibly need to diversify its portfolio in order to actually continue that growth and make it sustained. But I think that it has a lot of allies. You know, there are a lot of people within Europe who sort of look at Greece and still hold this impression of broke country, can't handle its finances. I mean, as a Greek-British person, I think I'm allowed to say that I think that the roles have now been reversed and the UK now holds that that crown. Um, but, and so, you know, take it like this, when I'm thinking about where I'd like to work over the next five, 10 years, I'm leaning more Greece than the UK. So that sort of can give you my impression of the upward trajectory that it sort of has on its path. Yeah. And no offense to the British beaches, but much better beaches in Greece. So <laughs> a little, little better there. Alex Papropoulos, thank you so much for the time today. Till we get you back on Hertel to let folks know how they can keep up with you, how they can follow you. We're going to link to your piece and all your social media. Let folks know how they can keep up with you till we get you back on Hertel again. Yep. So I write for the Young Voices Europe blog, but I'm also a Young Voices UK contributor. So you can find me on Twitter. Um, 
at Alex T. Pet. And I'm writing for all sorts of publications. We got published in City AM today. So if you just follow me on Twitter, you can find all my good and bad takes. Yep, his profile's up on the youngvoices.org page. We'll link to that. We'll definitely have you back. Important part of the world. We got to keep an eye on a lot going on there, especially Erdogan acting funny. Greece is going to be our natural ally there. Thank you so much, Alex Petropoulos. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Hi, welcome to Herd Tell. All right, he's back. He's one of our favorites. Peter Pisky's back with us. He's a reporter. He's a great journalist, good friend of the program. How are you, sir? Great to have you back. Howdy, howdy. Great to be here again. Uh, doing well. Great. I uh, I love having you for culture stuff because I'm pretty upfront. There's a lot of this stuff I just don't understand. It's not my thing. It's kind of a foreign language to me. So I'm glad you're here to explain it to me. Let's start with a big ticket item that kind of got on everybody's radar this week. And then we're going to get into some other stuff because it does touch on gaming culture and news media and how it crosses over. Uh, for folks that don't know, there's a new Harry Potter game out, Hogwarts Legacy. There's been a lot of press about it. It's very, very popular. It's selling really well. It's rated really highly. But anything with Harry Potter, people get into the J.K. Rawlings things. They get into the controversies with some of her personal opinions, even though she doesn't really have anything to do with the game other than creating this world and these characters. Just for folks that don't know, kind of explain it for a minute, because this is one of those things where there was trying to be a backlash on it, but the thing's so popular, the backlash doesn't really seem to work. Or as one gaming journalist wrote, this is going to be a referendum on J.K. Rawlings. Well, the referendum is people just want to play the game, it looks like. <laughs> No, and that's correct. It, there's a, it's a good news, bad news situation. Uh, the good news is the game is excellent. So Hogwarts Legacy is the seven-year endeavor by Avalanche Software on behalf of their publisher, Warner Brothers, of course, who owns the license to Harry Potter. And uh, this is basically you get to live the fantasy that you kind of wanted when you were a kid when you read those books. Um, it's, I was playing the game just last night. It's pretty good. People are pretty happy with it. I would say it's around an eight or nine out of 10. That's where most people are scoring it. Um, there has been some backlash, not because of anything the game has done or really the game developers, but because of JK Rowling's comments on transgender issues, you know, the stuff with uh, women's shelters and bathrooms. Um, many people, particularly on the left. And so that includes a lot of people in media say that she's a turf, which is trans exclusionary radical feminist i don't know how accurate that is to be honest but that's how people label her and so this idea popped up and it became part of the mainstream was that if you bought this game that somehow those dollars would then go to jk rowling and then she would use those dollars to hurt trans people now all of this if you think about it silly because she makes more money selling bookmarks for barnes and nobles and walmart I mean, then she gets for any game. I mean, she's she's a billionaire. She's one of the richest people on the planet. So the game sells, the game doesn't sell. That doesn't affect J.K. Rowling all that much. Um, I think the good news here is that it used to be with media, particularly from uh, gaming journalism, 
that if they really hated something, they could gang together and they could try to kill it. And there were many cases of that, especially prior to 2016. Um, but what we're learning now is that despite all the hate in the media, despite so many people telling you, if you play this game, you're a very bad person, it hasn't worked. The game is uh, outselling records. It's outpacing even the best expectations for it. It had uh, yesterday over 1.2 million people on Twitch streaming the game. So that's people who are playing and then other people are watching them. And that doesn't include everyone that's just, you know, playing the game right now. So it's a mega super success. It's a great game. It's really nice to see uh, that it is doing so well. It is a little sad that the juice that the gaming press used to have doesn't seem to be there anymore. But in this case, they were choosing to use it for uh, in a wrong way. Yeah, Peter Pisky joining us. We need to explain something here, though. Our My friend uh, Jay Bird over at Ordinary Times wrote this up when this kind of broke out at the end of last week and over the weekend. He pointed this out, and I want you to explain it to folks that aren't real familiar with how gaming works, especially business gaming like Twitch, like streaming, like writing about video games, covering video games. That's a specific niche business model now. And Jay really laid this out good. He's like, what happened here was the big time streamers got the game early. And this backlash really started because everybody started dogpiling the gamers that got it early of why are you playing this game early? Because that was just a handful of people. But then as soon as everybody had access to it, everybody started playing it. It sure looks like this was one of those things where it was everybody kind of want to project that. Look, if you got a problem with J.K. Rollins, I have no problem with you boycotting the game. It's your money. You're allowed to protest whatever you want. Fine and dandy. But we got a little bit of data here, and I think Jay was right to point it out this way. They just jumped on the early folks, but then as soon as everybody else got it, everybody else was just playing it anyway, too. It does look like this was a little bit of the online didn't actually match what people were actually doing once they could just settle in and play the game. Feels like a lot of projection going on here. Definitely. It is, it is sad how often the reality of what actually happens with gamers, what they want to play, what the discourse is, doesn't match what is being pushed in the press or you see on social media from uh, big or verified outlets. That is actually a very common thing, but it doesn't get talked about all that much because to point it out, it says the people that are in charge or the, that are the official voices for these things maybe aren't representing the, the player base like they should. I, I think it, this is, of course, it's an issue of the Streisand effect. With Jonah Goldberg coined the terms when Streisand didn't want people to be able to see her simmer house on the coast. And then just talking about how they weren't allowed to talk about it made more people interested. Um, I would also uh, say that people do not like being told what they can't do. And when they had with those initial influencers, when we had people, you know, these activists that say they're trans activists, and they would go onto Twitch and they would start saying really ugly comments encouraging others to do so there's a particular twitch stream that went viral you can find youtube where the guy this guy is gaming with his girlfriend and she was just checking the comments and she has to leave the room crying because it got so vicious people really hate that they they don't like you know being so controlled especially when it's something that is pretty up in the air is this really going to hurt trans people or not and having everyone decide for you people hate that which I like, I like to see that. I like to see that people still have open minds and are willing to decide for themselves. Uh, but it is sad that it was even necessary in the first place. Yeah, this leads to something we've been talking about a little bit. Peter Pisky joining us. Gaming culture is its own thing. I don't think it's fair to call it niche anymore because it's really big business. So I think niche or things, I think that's almost downplaying what it is. 
gaming culture, the business of gaming. Look, video games is integrated in everything because every movie has a video game. Shows have video games. It's anymore. It's its own entertainment sector, for lack of a better term, right? It's like movies. It's on that level almost. But the media coverage of it, there's two sides to this. When the mainstream media gets a hold of something like the Hogwarts thing, like the G4 thing we're going to talk about in a little bit, pick whatever. There's been a couple examples. They don't really know how to cover it other than inside of their own templates. And you're a journalist. You know how that works. And then the other side of it is, is the folks that are inside of that bubble don't always communicate or present to the outside world their best foot forward because they're used to being inside of that world. Is that a fair way to put it? Because I don't think we're getting good media coverage when something like this happens from either side. I would agree for the most part. Uh, there, there are several issues really why that is. For one, the mainstream press are full of people that don't, they don't really consider gaming as a big part of their lives. It's not something they think a lot about. That's probably because the mainstream press versus the gaming press, there is a bit of a, a median age difference there. Uh, mainstream press is probably people who are older. They come maybe from a more upper class background. And no offense to them. Um, I think the other issue is that even though gaming is huge, I mean, it's there. there's many more dollars being sold every year for video games than movies, television, books, etc. But the coverage of it is pretty niche. I, there are a couple of reasons why that might be besides like the gaming press is very political. They're kind of they have an activist mentality. Um, this ter the gaming is not a niche uh, culture, but there are many niche terms in it. And so that's very focused on a smaller audience. And you can see even when there is success, when the, the gaming press crosses over and does well in the mainstream, they, they usually aren't allowed to be there all that long. We just had the Washington Post, which closed Launcher, which in the world of the gaming media was actually a very successful venture. But they're just to the Washington Post and Bezos. They just didn't seem to be enough money there. So they let go. And we are, of course, seeing firings in gaming media across the board, even as games are selling better than ever. Again, this is a little bit of a culture thing for folks that aren't familiar with it, but this ties into the G4, and we'll get into your interview with Frost here in a minute, but G4 came back and disappeared. It was a channel about video gaming. Part of the problem with the press of video games is kind of, it's almost like YouTube on steroids, the way Twitch works, the way streaming works. Every you, We want to talk about everybody becoming their own journalist. Everybody really is their own gamer here. It's really hard to get a business model where just about anybody can tap into the money stream themselves. Some of this feels like there's an evolution in the business models and the coverages and trying to set these things up in the gaming world or in the gaming press to be specific under the old rules of how you would do, you know, like a newspaper or a network TV system. It's not just going to match up because these folks are streaming in real time. They're putting out information in real time. There's no delay. It's very immediate. That's just a totally different world that I'm not sure corporate media has fully enveloped. But we now have a whole generation of gamers. That's their natural ecosystem. Is that part of the problem with the business model and all this right now? 
That is definitely a large factor of it. I think maybe you don't see that the big corporate networks, so like NBC, ABC, CBS, um, the big newspapers. But I think for most smaller journalists, people who are independent, who work on medium to small outlets, they realize that they are no longer competing against other reporters, journalists, and you know, uh, writers. They are competing against everyone else that wants your attention. And when it comes to news coverage, it's not just you and the other news guys. You're also going against people who are on YouTube, people who are on the social media, so like Twitter or Facebook. Um, you know, uh, there are even smaller platforms which in their own ways get used similarly you know they have platforms oh, i mean it's actually pretty big but to people who are aware of it discord is another one i think gaming it's to that but to the 1000th degree because gaming media the people who are in charge of it were so kind of bent not positively towards their audience that they led an opening and so you have all these people who are on youtube all these people who are on twitch and they can command you know some of these guys millions of people at a time and that model is out competing the typical uh video game news model and so we're seeing a lot of change there it is really interesting because you have all this money games bigger than ever and the game press seems to be shrinking but the youtubers who cover gaming uh, they are doing just fine. Yeah, Peter Pitsky joining us. He's also the uh, host of wonderful CultureScape podcast. You got a lot of attention and you got some of that game press attention with your interview with Frost. The G4 thing I just mentioned, again, just kind of give the background here before we get into that. Why? Because this goes to a lot of this. They brought back G4 and it didn't work. Again, it failed pretty quickly. And the whole thing with that, and you give the full background on this, things changed. It wasn't a great model to start with. And then the things that had happened since then made it even more tough. And then that gets into the interview and the controversies because it, a lot of that goes to some very core things. Who is your audience? What's your responsibility to your audience? How do you understand your audience? What does the audience owe you and what do you owe your audience when it's a shifting landscape, culturescape, not to use a pun on term, that's that's shifting under their feet as they're doing it and it, the company's failing and people are getting flack that's just a lot of really cross streams to all these core issues we just talked about and this is kind of a good example of it isn't it it is we're seeing huge changes in media even in my short time i've been in the the business uh we've seen just huge fluctuations for how the work is uh looked at how you move in your career, what are the expectations for your audience? And I would say for the most part, those are for the positive. But when it comes to making a livelihood, making money in news media, it is very difficult often. Uh, the story of G4 TV is some of you may remember back in the 2000s, there was this video game channel. It really had only two good shows for the most part. And then it would put on like reruns of cops and cheaters for like 12 hours a day. <laughs> Um, that was G4 TV. It did very well, though, for, for what it was. It got closed down. It really was pretty much winded down by 2009, but it was officially closed 2011. Well, the Comcast, you know, the giant billion-dollar media company, they decided they would bring it back, and they put it. They brought it back under their subsidiary Comcast Spectacor, which was run by the CEO of Comcast's son, Tucker Roberts. And so they decided they were going to bring back the G4 TV brand, but this time they would try to update it for the modern communication standards. So of course, places like YouTube and Twitch, but also they try to focus on linear. Uh, and this ended up being a just a fantastic screw up all the way around. 
when they brought this back, there are several things that went wrong besides the fact that they decided they would have like seven different verticals they're focusing on. So they, it wasn't just for YouTube. It wasn't just for Twitch. It wasn't just for satellite or cable. It wasn't just for Roku. And I'm trying to think of the last one. They had, you know, by the end of it, seven different verticals, which means you have a team. So you have a team of eight, eight people, and they're supposed to make content for one of those verticals, say YouTube. They would expect them to make about 15 hours of content for a week. Now, times that by eight, and you can see the problem there. The other problem was G4 TV, Comcast really never understood their audience. And so when they brought back this brand, they tried to act as if nothing had happened, and they didn't really recognize where the games media were, where people were now, and they just weren't able to gain traction. So it's hard to tell totally whose idea it was, but last year, January, just a few months after they brought this back, uh, one of their hosts, Indiana Frosker and Black, who had previously, before uh, G4 TV, was a fairly popular uh, sportscaster for League of Legends, which is an esports game. And she decided to give this rant, and it was interpreted as sexism in gaming and, folk, and that the target audience was everyone in gaming. So this goes out. It's like three to five minutes. And the gaming media, they grab it. Uh, I'm glad I talked about them a little earlier here because it gives you a sense of the animosity the, in the relationship between the gaming media and gamers. And so the gaming media took this rant and they didn't say it was just uh, Frost has issues with people who are uh, attacking her at work or in her YouTube comments. No, they said, Frost, this is she is saying this about all the gamers and she should. All of you people are terrible. You're sexist trolls. We hate all of you. And so that's how this was interpreted. And of course, people pushed back very hard and fast. Now, first, everything seemed positive. You know, when Frost had the gaming media and when they were interested, it, it looked like maybe she'd win that PR war, but they lose interest. But all the haters, all the people, all the beehives that they had, you know, started whacking at, they did not forget. And they continued to be mad about it even till now. And it was, it wasn't really what killed G4 TV. Like Comcast bringing the brand as they did, handling it so badly as they did, they kind of pushed it next, put next to the cliff, but it was Frox that kind of pushed it over. And to this day, people still attack her. But the weird thing is I noticed um, uh, just this last month was during this whole year of, you know, millions of YouTube hits, who knows how many uh, tweets on Twitter, all this attacks on Frost, she had never really said much after that five minutes. There's like maybe three tweets she had made in all of last year about this topic, about her rant. And that seemed weird to me. So after a friend uh, got to interview one of her coworkers, I decided to try to reach out to her and her agent again. And to my surprise, they agreed to have Frost come on my show. And uh, she sat down with me for, oh, almost four hours. It's a great, like, two and 15 minute, two hours and 15 minute interview. And we get into a lot of that. And it turns out from her side, things, they are much more complicated. But the media system in which we live does not like complication. And it really, even though we seem to have more access to media than ever before, I think what people expect are takes that are more simplistic than ever before. And all that really hurt her badly.
Yeah, Peter Pipsky. Look, I don't. I didn't know her at all until basically you started covering it, and I went back and read it. So I, I think I'm pretty decently neutral when I watched that interview, and I watched it a couple times, and I took it in sections because it's a long interview, and we're gonna link to it. It's on his Culture Scape page. Great channel. Make sure you subscribe to that. So I don't know all the particulars. I'm just watching it fairly neutral, right? Yeah. You can tell a lot of anger. Like I got a lot. Like, and I'm not talking about reactionary anger. I'm talking simmering. This is stuff that is not one rant or one incident or even one or two years. This is deep-seated stuff. This is deep-seated cultural stuff from the world that she chose to inhabit in the gaming world. This is not stuff that is unique to her. This is stuff we've heard from other places. But that's what I got from her. And aside from what she's saying, and there's a lot of he said, she said in here, and folks can parse that out as they will. I just got a lot of simmering anger at how this situation unfolded and then the reaction to it, which seems kind of disproportionate. Is that kind of a fair way to lay it out without getting into all the, you know, the rights and the wrongs and who did what to who that's just a general impression. I got just listening to it. Yes. I, it, it, people don't like to hear it necessarily because it doesn't please any particular side, but yes, the, the amount of negative attention and vitriol that this woman received was disproportionate to what she actually had done. And it completely ignored the very real and understandable extenuating circumstances that when she explains it and how corrupt Comcast is in running their media companies and all the shenanigans that went on there. While what she said wasn't great and it would be something that I particularly loved. I mean, I, I wrote critically about her many times before I ever got to actually talk to her as a person, as someone that's worked in media and as someone that kind of knows the gaming space, the relationship between the gaming press and gamers, she really got treated as, uh, you know, here's an example of the worst person in the world, which was completely uncalled for. But unfortunately, that's that's kind of the world we live in. And you would think with more information, people would have more patience or they would try to seek out more sides of a story. But the weird thing is about the Internet age, despite more access to information than anyone could ever possibly want, people actually seem to process it a little bit less fairly, a little bit less critically. Um, but that's not just something I've noticed. I mean, anyone that works in media or even entertainment has noticed that this has been happening. But it puts creators, it puts reporters, journalists, influencers, anyone with an audience in a weird position where sometimes you might, you know, when you have to zig and you were supposed to zag, when you were supposed to tell the, the hard truth or something uncomfortable, but it was a lot easier just to say what people like to hear. Currently, the, the common advice is just go with what people want to hear. And while you can say, hey, Frost should never have said this about gamers, I think it should be open that, hey, if she really feels like this is an issue with her particular audience, you know, let her say it, let people hear her out. Even if it's something that you and I disagree, let people decide for themselves. But that's not where we're living in currently. Yeah, Peter Papisky, this gets back to where we started. And that's why I wanted to walk through a couple of the other things. First is criticism's too strong a word, but one of my takeaways from listening to that interview, and again, pretty neutral because I don't know all the parties involved. I'm not a huge gamer. I play a couple of games here and there. I don't really have a whole lot of time for it. Not my world, right? I just dabble in it when I'm mm -hmm. trying to cover it. It is also very clear to me that while she obviously feels the way she feels and she's entitled to, this is a great example of what we talked about. 
here you have a content creator and I don't, I mean that in a good way, content creator. That's what she is. A media personality that didn't understand the corporate side of the world that she was working in when you're working for a network, right? You're working in the corporate world and didn't understand the audience and the reaction that was going to come from that. Now, part of that, she touched on that. She felt like she kind of got set up to fail here with the way it went down. And I think that's fair to point out here too. This goes to that communication thing. You got to know your audience and the corporate world and that audience, they're just not on the same wavelength a lot of the time. And stuff like this happens where those content creators more and more, I think they're going to end up getting caught in the middle when they try to dabble in the corporate world and still retain their audience. Corporate big companies, they see the big numbers. They want their piece of the pie, but they don't understand how the pie was baked, nor do they really care all that much. That was the giant mistake here. Frost, when I talked to her, here was one of the few. Well, she said a lot that was surprising. I actually feel quite, uh, not me as a person, but my opinion of her and understanding the story widened significantly. And I almost makes me to the point where I feel bad because I feel like how I reported on her before, based on who I could talk to and the information I had, was uh, a bit too black and white. But uh, she kind of, like you said, got set up to fail. Comcast had decided to take that rant she made. Now, she thought, according to her own words, she had been asking to do, you know, these 15 hours times six amount of content every week. And so much of that was throwaway. And at that point, you're just on the, the content mill constantly. You're just trying to churn out as much content as you can get the, you know, the, uh, the organ monkey to grind. And so she, they said, hey, just, you know, you want to give this rant, talk about what you hate about in gaming as like kind of like a, a funny kind of sarcastic New Year's thing. She says, okay, sure. Now she thought in her head and they thought this is like going to be seen by like 2000 people max, right? So not very big for how much money was put into this thing. But people at Comcast, they thought that this was almost old style was like any publicity is good publicity. And so that someone decided, I don't know if it was just marketing or if middle management was all, but someone decided they would take this rant for this specific audience and blow it up as big as possible. Get as many people to see it, get as many people as mad, and then hope that somehow this would turn into usable attention for Comcast. You know, it's like the old the old Simpsons meme. You know, it's like step one, you know, make every, yeah, step one, blow this up, make everyone mad. Step two, question mark. Step three, everyone loves us. They didn't really have a plan for how to transform that somehow to everyone liking them. And so Frost kind of got put in this position where she was used as this uh, lightning rod for all this vitriol that came their way, for people's feelings about what happened to the brand at Comcast, for people's feelings about how people in the gaming press treat people in their audience, you know, and just for the, the feelings about uh, influencers in general. And the ironic thing in all this is when I talked to Frost, she said, if they had asked me, I would have told them, no, do not post that. Do not post that. That is not a good idea. So Frost at some level did understand this was, was a bad thing to do, but Comcast, the giant corporation with all the money in the world, all the top experts, whoever they want, they could pay for it. They did not seem to understand. And I think when influencers and news people try to work with these companies, they should realize that there is going to be an information gap that if we are not careful, that's probably unbridgeable for us. Yeah.
Peter Pisky joining us. One other topic on this I want to hit real quick here. I want to take up for content creators and influencers, I think, is a little different thing because I think that gets a little icky. But I want to take up for the content creators for a second because I is one. For people that don't know, when you're saying something like 15 times three content creation, I don't know that the general audience fully appreciates what that means. Like for me to put out an hour long show five times a week, that's five hours of content. But that's about eight or nine hours per hour of content I put out to produce that. Like there's a three to one ratio on prep work when I do stuff. That's not making it. That's not editing. That's just preparing for it. Just real quick, talk people through that. I I don't know that maybe the corporate folks understand. They think you just sit in front of a mic and talk. There's so much more involved in that. I do want to take up for the people that think that ain't work and content creation isn't work. No, it's not. You're not in a coal mine and you're not tar on a road, but it's a lot of hours and it's a lot of effort. Definitely. No, that is a great point that people didn't really understand how that works. That definitely seemed very true, especially since so many people that were hired for Comcast Spectacore were people who had previously worked at Linear TV, especially for WWE Wrestling, oddly enough. And they did kind of have an older understanding of what it took to make content. But you were right. It is, you know, this is one thing I always get pushback for when people ask, you know, what, what are the problems with journalism what are the problems of the media why does it seem different than it than it did before and one of the things i usually point out is like the vast majority of people who work in journalism are not millionaires okay these are people who if they're lucky in most markets will be able to get sixty thousand a year now people don't like to hear that what do you mean journalists journalists could be working class yeah in fact most of them are most of the people that you are influencing you that you hear from except for like the biggest of them they are in that situation where they're not making much more money than anyone else. And the work that's that's part of that, it is a lot of work. It's so much prep work. It's so much connection, trying to, trying to get people to talk to you and to put together information. It's so much editing and production afterwards. And then, you know, you have the work of just trying to get it out to people, promotion. It is a lot of effort. And I think in some ways, I'd hope that because everyone now seems to be kind of stuck in the content creation mind, you know, that more people would understand how much effort goes to it. But it seems like content creators that aren't in journalism are some of the most vicious critics there are. I think maybe that might change with time because I I feel like what's going to happen is that the journalism and those who are more just content creation influencers, I feel like those things are kind of sliding together they're slowly kind of morphing into one thing so that might change with time but currently despite you know like bigger audiences than ever and they're consuming all this information there doesn't seem to be more forgiveness no because human nature is still undefeated it's just we figured out a way to supercharge it and get rid of a lot of the filters which is something society that's society wise that's politics religion music whatever that's not just gaming that's just kind of part and partial to the age we live in. Peter Pitsky, I love talking about this stuff with you because you have to explain it to me because I don't fully understand it. I'm glad you do it. People need to check out Culturescape. You do a great job with it, along with all your other writing. Let folks know what you got going on. You're a good friend of the program. We love having you on. But until we get you on again, let them know how they can follow you, keep up with you, and all these various things you've got going on, my friend. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So I'm, I'm at the moment, I'm a little frazzled because I'm recovering from a, a medical trip, but I am doing more research on the G4 TV issue. I have some op-eds I'm currently putting together that hopefully will come out soon. I'm enjoying Hogwarts Legacy and, uh, you know, just hanging out, enjoying life, always looking for uh, the next uh, big story. 
you know, so if you ever want to say hi or, or you have a story to share, whatever, you know, you can always find me on Twitter at Happy Warrior P. And uh, of course, please look up the podcast Culturescape. We put that out uh, once a week. It's usually uh, uh, I just find someone I find interesting. I interview them. We talk about what they do. And then we just kind of leave it as it is. And I love that format because it feels like I get to talk about the things that I care about. The people I'm talking to, they get to share what they care about. And we just kind of leave it up to people to decide what to do with it. And I, I think that is the optimum way to go. Keep things honest. Keep things fair. And I think if more of us would go in that direction and more of the audience would accept that that is an ethical thing to do, I have very positive feelings for the scope, the arc of where media is heading. But at the current place we are, it is a little bit anarchic. Yeah, well, you do good work, my friend. Even all the negative feedback with the with the frost interview even amongst that there was a lot of comments about how well you handled the interview so i'm glad you're getting the attention for that my friend we'll talk again very soon peter pitchkey thank you sir okay no thank you anytime yes sir you think we handle those because i'm i'm always torn because both because i do we do the writing stuff like at ordinary times like well how do we cover these things but then at the same time you know practically what do you do with them because my first instinct with with wackadoos is you ignore them because everything you you know it's like you know it's like a grease fire anything you try to do to put it out you're just going to spread it because everything is publicity to these people um, what do you think we should do to handle them? Because we can't really ignore them because that doesn't work. You can't engage them because there's no good faith there that, you know, you're, it's silly putty nailed to the wall. You're not going to get anything productive out of engaging with them. So what do we do? Because, and again, like you said, we have a lot of examples on the right right now because they're really loud. Um, we're going to have a midterm election. We certainly are going to have probably bomb throwers on the left side of the because they're going to see that model and replicate it because it's a it's a good money making model. So we're going to get they already are. Yeah, this is going to be a self-perpetuating thing. How do we deal with this? How do you think we should approach it? You've been in Congress as an intern. You've seen it, although it was a bit of a different era. What do we do? Because I don't know. I don't. I'm just asking the question. I don't know the right way to handle these people because you can't engage them and you can't ignore them. So what do we do? The easy answer, not well, not the easy answer. I think the main answer right now is I don't know. It, it's really hard to, as you said, it's hard. To, you can't really ignore them. And I don't know if you want to ignore them because some of what they says, say and do are, is rather dangerous and you have to speak out to them. But I think maybe part of the answer has to be politicians who are willing to kind of model a different way and to be um, a different kind of, of politician. And maybe who are able to kind of speak in ways that kind of can reach out um, of what it means to truly be a leader in, in, a, in our society, what it means to actually govern. Um, and hopefully that there are, are, are gonna be enough people um, out there that will listen and um, start to maybe demand 
more from their politicians and instead of just always electing um, these fools. But that's kind of what I have. But I, I, you know, it's, I really feel like sometimes we're at this crossroads in, in American society where the answers just don't come easy. And, and, you know, I think sometimes we want to think that if, if it all someone says is, or has some, some type of, of great saying, or if they can say the right thing, everything will be solved. And, and I'm thinking right now, we're not in that era where we can just easily kind of solve this, or at least put this crazy person in their, in their place, because that crazy person is really backed up by the society, larger society. And um, I think we have to kind of sit with that and, and, and figure out what is the answer. Um, because I don't think it's that it's going to be that easy. I would love to say that here's the answer that we can kind of combat the crazies, but I don't know. I, I really don't. We were kicking this around on the radio show a couple of days ago, and I, I, this is a really big thing. So, and, but I just want to throw it to you. Cause I just want your reaction to it is we were, we were talking about, I think we're in a dispensation of time in America that we don't really understand because we've been so focused on post-World War II America for the last 70 years. And we've kind of lived on the fumes of that in a lot of ways. And we see the societal unrest because you have minorities and people like that, that are 20, 30 years behind that because of the civil rights movement and things is a lot of what we're seeing now. And I'm talking real big picture here, not just politics is a lot of what we're seeing in America now that with social media, with the technology, we're just having a reckoning of what we are as a people. And because everybody has a voice and everybody has a face online now, and everybody has an ability to amplify and interconnect that we're just having a long overdue reckoning of, Hey, this really is a big, very diverse, very pluralistic society. And, and there's a battle Royale that's just got to be worked out because people are just for the first time, a lot of them realizing that, Hey, there's most of the people in this world and in this country aren't like me at all. And there's millions of them. Is, is that kind of big picture? What's really going on here is just for the first time people are having to deal with, Oh, my little conclave that I grew up with. I'm in a, I'm a global citizen now and people are having to try to work that out. And some of them aren't working it out real well. I think it is. I think we have been for a long time and, and the way our whole reality has been shaped up has been the post war consensus but you know the that consensus actually probably broke down in the 80s um and i think we are living with those fumes but ev- but and, the 80s were so good See, uh, yeah. not to interrupt mm-hmm. you but that's where no, i no. think that's where the breakdown is because we had the economic resurgence in the 80s i i think and you know i was a baby i bar- i remember the late 80s because i was born in 1980 but but explain what you mean by that to folks that are maybe younger or just haven't thought of it that way, because people think of the 80s as a really good time in America. How can that be where the breakdown occurred? Because things were good in the 80s. We had, you know, pop culture explosion and MTV. Explain what you mean by that, because it runs counter to what a lot of people think that time was. So explain that a little bit, if you would, please. Sir. Well, yeah, and I think I probably would want to even back up a little bit more is that a lot of people like economists and some politicians and, and um, 
other experts would say that the the post-war consensus that was made after World War II, some of both economically and, and politically, probably ended around the mid-70s. So between like 1973 to 1975. So when you and we know what happened me, right around that time. So. Exactly. Yeah. Um and you know I don't really remember that time much because at that time I was um a kid and it was I was born in six, 1969. So I don't remember the, the the consensus. And we all know what happened with the 70s economically and all of that. Um, the 80s, I think the reason sometimes we remember it so fondly is that things did get better. And I think sometimes, even though it got better, that doesn't mean that the, the consensus hadn't you know that things weren't changing um that i think the economy was still kind of changing over there was still lots of movement of what things were happening you know if you lived in michigan in the 1980s it was a mess because the auto industry was changing we were dealing with competition from japan but we were also dealing with technology and that you didn't need as many people to make um, cars and all of that. So though there were things that are happening, even though the, I think the, the wider economy was, were, was doing rather well, um, there were parts of it where things were changing. That was also, you know, the rise of, of I think, the tech industry um, becoming uh, greater. So, you know, even in those times of change and, and even in the times when, when a consensus has ended, there are going to be good points. I think that there are going to be times where things go well. Um, and I think that that went into the 90s um, as the economy was still going strong. It was probably even better than it was in the 80s um, where it kind of faltered and where we started to have problems, I would say is probably around the year 2000 politically, because of course that was the year of that election. And then I think that caught up then in 2008 with um, the economic problems and the crash of the market and all of that. Those two things together, I think, really just kind of shattered any illusion that things were still going well. I mean, there was already a lot of change. Like I said, there was been a lot of change going in the 80s and 90s, but no one really noticed it as much because the economy was doing so well when the economy wasn't doing as well, and then also when Washington wasn't doing as well, that's when we started to see things happening. Top that off with the fact that our society was changing. Um, we have, I think, for a long time, especially during the post-war consensus, World War II consensus, to put this probably in the most crudest way possible, we still thought of ourselves as a mostly white nation. That has been changing dramatically um, over the last 40, 50 years. Uh, immigration and, and other things have changed in that we are much more diverse than we ever have been. And that's gonna bring up, bring up a lot of questions and a lot of, of friction, um, you know, this is why I think why we have this whole thing about the 1619 project when, and all the 
kind of craziness on that is that we're all trying to figure out, okay, so now we have this country and what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to live in America? What does it mean that we are a democracy, but yet we also have this horrible history of slavery or, or how we treated Native Americans? And so we're all trying to deal with all of those issues, some actually most not very well. Um, and so I think a lot of what we're seeing is, I think you are correct, that we're heading into something new. And I think we're all nervous about it. And to talk about social media for a second, you, um, I don't know if you've read or heard, heard much from Martin Gurry, um, who talks a little bit about you know, how the media was once, that there were kind of gatekeepers um, in the media. And of course, you only had at one time three networks and all of this stuff. And you know, with social media, now anyone can say anything. And there are people who don't like that. They wish that we could go back to what it was, but that horse is out of the barn and into the next county and down the valley and into the next state. I mean, it's, it's just gone. There, I don't think we can go back to what we once were. I think we have to figure out what it means to live now in this era of social media. And, and instead of trying to long for some day that it is just not coming back. it's something else too and not to get overly poetic about it you know i love my country i'm i i'm very open about you know what i think about america i think i think my bona fides are a patriot are pretty well established at this point for a lot of reasons i, I love my country part of this that we're talking about is understanding that i love my country other people also love our country but they love it differently and they express mm -hmm. that love differently and they got there differently and almost like a family relationship, not to beat a metaphor to death, but their relationship with the country has different baggage than mine. And they mm -hmm. have different experiences with their country than I do. And it's, and unless you're just going to really do a deep dive into history, which granted guilty because I'm, you know, a history guy at heart. My dad was a history teacher and made sure I knew all that stuff. Um, a lot of people just don't have, maybe they've never taken the time to understand that, hey, they can still love this thing that I love. They're just loving it differently and they're loving it from a different point of view. But mm -hmm. that's that's some that's not just advanced citizenship, which America demands of us. That's advanced adulting. And yes, I don't think it's something we can really teach. I don't think you can. You certainly can't legislate it. You're not going to make people do it. But I think it's a modeled behavior and a and an advocacy thing where we just have to keep pushing people to go like, hey, you part of one of the great freedoms in America is the freedom to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's OK if their view of our country is different. And it does, even if they're critical of the country, that doesn't that's something I've had to mature and kind of grow up about is like 
just because they're critical of the country and I love my country doesn't mean they don't love their country. A lot of them are critical because they care so dang much about it. It's coming off as anger and it's coming off as frustration and they want things to be better. This isn't just a political thing. This is, this is adulting. This is grown, you know, it's in my family, this is grown folk stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's just not enough people at the grown folk table to talk about this right now because people keep coming with mess and getting sent to the kids table. I don't know what kind of your family you grew up in, but that's how it works. You know, grown folk talk at the grown folk table. That's a privilege, not a right. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that those are the things that we just don't have a good way of dealing with right now of, hey, this is the advanced adult citizenship we need to work on to maintain being a great country. And I think maybe we're in some growing pains or maybe even maybe birthing pains because we're still a young country. Maybe this is just the birthing pains of making a a great society that's going to last more than two or three hundred years. If you're going to have that thousand year thing that a lot of countries and societies and cultures are, this is the process. Is that is that maybe part of it is like we just don't have a maturity to it? I think it is there. I'm reminded and I'm probably going to butcher this, but it's a, a quote by James Baldwin that says, you know, I love my country and I love it, I love it enough that I'm, I'm willing to criticize it. And I think for myself being African-American, and, and I think that this is something that I've, I've realized, I think for most African-Americans in, is that we have, a, have to live with it in a way with a duality. And the duality is, is that we love our country. I mean, there's a reason that Martin Luther King spoke and used the words of the founding fathers and, and the Declaration of Independence because this is who we are. We are Americans. That's why we're fighting for all for civil rights. But you also know the past. I, I mean, I know my father growing up in Jim Crow, Louisiana. I know that I have, you know, my ancestors were slaves. So you know that history, and you know how we have been treated in the past and, and, you know, to be honest, that we're still kind of dealing with some of those issues today, even though I think it's, it's much better um, than what it was. And I think that for people, especially I think for, for white Americans and for, there has been a certain view of America that has almost been perfect, um, that we haven't had any real big issues and, and issues have all been solved and, and I think that's kind of one of the, one of the things that are getting into the whole like critical race theory stuff. Um, and I say this knowing that there are things you can be critical about critical race theory, but I think a lot of it is this fear of hearing about things about America that aren't always so great that we are we weren't always the guys with the white hats. Um, and so there's this fear that if I have to see something critical about America, then that means I hate America. And then that is not the case. Um, this is a big, diverse, and I will also say complex country. But I think for all of it, I think we're a good country. But good does not mean perfect. Good just means good. And I think you know part of that maturity will come from being willing to kind of understand our past, um, understanding some of the, the parts of our present that need to be corrected, um, and yet understanding that there are still things that are good about this country. Um, now, I, I probably should add on the other side of that, because there are people 
I've been kind of basically talking from the right, from the left of saying there you can have people doing things that are bad and they can still also be good people. Um, that happens too. And we have to, I think, admit there are also good things about this country. Um, personally, I think, you know, the fact that this country barely 50 years after the civil rights movement was able to elect a black man to become president twice says something about us. Um, I think that that's something that we need to also take to heart as well. And so I think it, it, there's a kind of maturity that has to come from, I think, both sides of the aisle of, of being willing to deal with the good and the bad and not kind of have this whatever kind of avatarish view of America. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.